Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of That's Entertaining. This week, we get into the gaming with Dragon Age Inquisition. Such a fantastic game, and we'll be extolling on that in depth later. But joining me this week, we have gone international with Mr. Peter Newman. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Welcome aboard. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah. So, for the folks who may not know who you are, what you've done, what your greatest accomplishments in life are, why don't you go ahead and uh, explain to the folks why they may know you. Okay, well, uh, I'm based in the UK, in Somerset, and my quick claims to fame is I've just had a book come out in the UK, published by Harper Voyager, which is a sci-fi fantasy novel called The Vagrant, and... The other claim to fame is that my wife, uh, Emma Newman, who's also a writer, uh, we co-write a podcast together, um, a Hugo-nominated podcast, in fact, called Tea and Jeopardy. And we're up for a Hugo this year, so for best fan cast, so fingers crossed. So for those of us in the States, what does Hugo, what is that? Well, the Hugo Awards um, are connected to Worldcon and have quite a big US following, actually. Um, so they're one of the big science fiction awards and, um, that you can get. There are lots of different categories of Hugo that you can get, um, ranging from novel to, uh, and then various different sizes of written fiction, so novellas, um, but also the award covers things like uh, editors for long and short form. It also covers um, things like fanzines. Um, so there are lots of different categories in Hugos that can be won. Uh, and the awards are always given out at a world con. So last year it was in London. Um, this year I think it's in Spokane. So it, yeah, it, it goes around all over the world um, and is, is one of the most, I think, probably well-known uh, genre awards that there is, really, um, and certainly one that, that probably has you know, a lot of controversy and news and things that circulate around it. Aha. Uh -huh. So I may have had a brain malfunction, but I think I may have talked about Hugo briefly a couple weeks ago with Don. Uh, there's a book called The Martian, I think. And I think that that may have been nominated for a Hugo as well a few years back. But I'm not 100% for sure on that. But now that you t talk about it, I think that may be the case. Yeah, uh, it's it's certainly possible. I've only got involved with Hugo's kind of relatively recently in, in the last couple of years. But... Um... Yeah, it's certainly possible, and a lot of the sort of the real classics uh, of the genre. You know, the Hugo has been around for many, many years now, um, and and so is so is Worldcom for that matter. So, um, but for anyone who is listening to this and thinking, what what is this Hugo business all about? Just tap that into your search engine, and you'll get a long, long list of results. I mean, there really is. There's plenty out there on it, and the really cool thing is, if you win a Hugo, the trophies look like a rocket ship. <laughs> and and, uh, and they design a different rocket ship each year, but they're all, it's always a rocket ship, and they're they're amazing. Are they modelled after an actual rocket ship? Uh, well, the designs the designs shift, but um, it it it's always a very cool rocket ship. Let's okay. put it that way. And and one of the nice things, if you get nominated for a Hugo, which we did last year, is you get a little Hugo pin that you can wear at the convention, which is a little rocket ship pin. So that's very cool too. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that is cool. Congratulations on the nomination, and I hope for the best for you. Yeah, thank you. And if uh, if any listeners were looking for that podcast, again, it is called Tea and Jeopardy. That's right, Tea and Jeopardy, and you can go to teaandjeopardy.com 
to uh, to check it out, and it's free to listen to. Uh, and if just if I can very briefly say what it is, it's effectively an interview podcast. Um, and the idea is that uh, a guest comes along. Sometimes it's very often it's a writer of fantasy, but sometimes we have editors and agents or just really interesting and cool people. And uh, they go to a tea lair, and the tea lair changes each episode. So it might be, for example, in a volcano, or it might be in a giant robot, or it might be in a spaceship, or on the back of a giant eagle. And uh, they go to the tea lair. Emma meets them, has tea and cake with them, and then at the end they face some kind of peril that they have to try and escape from. I listened to the one with Drew Carpitian, and he was uh, he was a a lock, and then there was a a, a monster, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's that's pretty much how it rolls. So yeah, every guest always has faces some kind of peril, and the peril is often possibly connected to the butler uh, Latimer, who doesn't like writers very much. It seems. <laughs> I see, a nefarious butler. Yes, a nefarious butler, and it's so it's part sort of audio drama and it's part interview. Cool. And it's very very silly. Well, you got to have silly. I mean, yes. if it's all serious, no one wants to listen to the news for 24 hours a day. Although there are so many news channels that go 24 hours a day, I guess that was a false statement. <laughs> <laughs> so, excellent. And you said that you just recently released a book called The Vagrant? Yeah, that's right. It's my debut novel. Uh, it's just come out with Harper Voyager. It's, it's come out in the UK at this point, so it's not out in the US at the moment, though hopefully that will change. Um, and it is uh, very quickly... Um, it tells the story of uh, a man, a sort of lone wanderer, who is carrying humanity's last hope and trying to uh, to get it to where it needs to be. And he is going across a um, a far future landscape that has just suffered a demonic apocalypse. And uh, it sort of features various things. It's got a silent protagonist. Uh, it's got a baby as one of the main characters. A it's baby. got yeah, a baby. Um, <laughs> it's got singing swords, demon knights, and uh, and a bad goat. <laughs> so, <laughs> does the goat speak? Well, it bleats. It's 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 a goat. I mean, it doesn't you know it doesn't chat. It's not a magic talking goat or anything. Okay. Um, so it's slightly sort of you've got kind of future tech in it, um, but it is after an apocalypse, so it's dystopian. But it's also got a lot of fantasy elements in it as well. Cool. So you might say it's after a blight. Ooh. You might. One of the <laughs> things that one of the things actually that was really because obviously I wrote the book long before I played uh, Dragon Age Inquisition. But <laughs> in the Vagrant, there is a thing called the Breach, which is a place at which the the demons came through. And of course, uh, then everyone was talking about the Breach in Dragon Age. But you know, complete coincidence, I assure you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, greatness is always, always thought of all the time. So, let's continue on with the traditional format of the show. And I thank you again for joining us, Peter. Oh, thank you. So, you know, recently I've been able to actually watch TV shows and play games. It's been, it's been liberating because my housework is almost done. I've been working on my house recently. Ooh. And so it's been taking a lot of my time. But... You know, we're getting towards the end, so there's a light in the tunnel, which also means <laughs> there's a video game at the end of the tunnel, too, which ah. sometimes is <laughs> maybe a little bit closer than the end of the tunnel. But uh, I've been watching, catching up on some TV shows that I've fallen behind, and two of note that I'll talk about, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., do you watch that? 
I did watch the I watched the first season or most of the first season of Agents of Shield, but I must admit I, it did not hold me. I've heard a lot of people saying it's got a lot better in the second season. It has, and I I have to ask. You said you watched a lot of the first season. About when did you stop? Well, I, okay. To to completely confess, <laughs> my uh, so Emma, my wife, was watching it, and I watched the first few episodes with her, and then I thought, oh, this is awful. And I dipped out, and but then I occasionally came back. And there's a point. I don't know how spoilers, you know, careful we have to be here, but there's a point in season one where there's a really quite good episode with a good twist, where kind of coinciding with a lot of the Hydra plot in the movies. Um, the Captain America Winter Soldier episode. Y- indeed, and the whole thing where you find out that some of the people in the main cast are not who you thought they were, and all that business, and it all twists. And and that character in particular, who I thought was pretty dull up to that point, became much more interesting. So that I briefly kind of rekindled my interest then, but it still it just didn't it just didn't hold me, I'm afraid. Um, but don't let me stand in the way of a good bit of excitement if you want to talk about how great it is in season two and things. <laughs> well, they just had uh, this past week was their two-hour season finale. Ah. So you know it was the end of season two, and I have to say. From that point that you described in season one that ties into Winter Soldier yeah. on, it's been a completely different show. And now next season is going to be, again, a completely different show than it is this season because of what happens at the end of uh, this season. So, I mean, it is kind of a, it is kind of hard to watch. If you're not really engrossed in it, if it doesn't really you know pull you in, it can be hard to kind of keep with it. And with the promise of, oh, it gets better. I mean, if it's not sucked you in by two or three shows, you're kind of done, right? Well, this is this is it. I think the thing as well is, is that the films, by and large, have been so superlative in terms of character and getting across lots very well and not being... Because, you know, if you'd asked me a few years ago about Captain America, I'd have said I've got no interest in Captain America. And if you'd asked me, maybe, I don't know, what, 10 years ago now, or whatever it was, about Iron Man, I wouldn't be that fussed about that. But I think they've they've done such a good job of bringing them in in the films. And yet, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I felt like, particularly the two scientist characters that we had in the early, were so <laughs> stereotyped and cliched and, like, non-character. It, uh-huh. it felt like it took a long, long time for the characters to develop in any really interesting way. You know, apart from the ones that we'd... Apart from May and... Um, Obviously, Coulson, who'd already been established, there were some that really stood out. Um, but, yeah, I, I just felt... I felt it took a long time to really care. They felt very flat to me. They felt like a duplicate, honestly, yeah. in the first season, right? The Fitz and Simmons characters. Yeah. Because they were both doing the exact same thing. But I do have to say, in the second season, they have completely different paths because of something that happens at the end of season one. Mm-hmm. So... Those two characters do actually develop a lot in the second season if you if that's something that entices you to go back. <laughs> I have heard a lot of people say the second season is better, so I might I might give it a reprieve. Yeah. And then there are well, there were episodes that tied into uh, Age of Ultron. Um ah. there was a lead-in episode and then uh, an episode that was the following week was after the events of Age of Ultron. So they they do tie into the movies. They have the nefarious hashtag it's all connected right now. Hmm. So they want to make sure that you understand that everything that's happening everywhere, even in Daredevil, is all connected hmm. with all the stuff that's happened. And if we can pause just for a moment to bask in the glory that is Daredevil. Uh, it is good. 
Daredevil is a whole different kettle of fish, I think, to Agents of Shield. I think it's on another level. It's on a different level. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's above as far as the story goes, because you know, comic. You look at comics, right? Yeah. And they all have. You have your Batman's and your Superman's, but you also have your Punishers, your street level guys, your yeah, yeah. your defenders, right? Which is what uh, Daredevil will be as a defender character. Mm-hmm. And. What they've been able to do, though, with the show, the, with the writing, the progression of the characters and everything, what is really well done for that Marvel Universe setting. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the storytelling, the direction, the, all of that in Daredevil is absolutely superlative. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I talked about really struggling with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but Daredevil had me really very quickly and never really let go. So um, and some people I've heard said that they, with Daredevil anyway... It took him an episode or two to get into it, mm-hmm. and you didn't find that you you were sucked right in. I think it was a few episodes in where it really took off, but in terms of just the quality of the direction and and um, the storytelling, I felt was higher right from the word go. But I mean, pretty much immediately that Fisk comes on, mm-hmm. it is just a you know it just leaps in, into the stratosphere. I think I think uh, their portrayal of Kingpin is just brilliant. It's just perfect. Yeah, and we we talked about this last week on the Daredevil uh, episode, but <laughs> man, I mean, it is it is a good show, and I've actually kind of wanted to go back and watch some of it again. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I got other things I need to actually go through the first time, on, <laughs> yeah. but I can't really do that right now. But it is it is excellent. The writing, like you said, and the filmography mm. or the art direction, I don't, yeah. one of those two things. The, the way the- it's shot, it's really good. There was an episode which actually, as an episode, wasn't, I didn't think was very strong, one of the really early ones. But at the end of the episode, there's a fight sequence. Um, I think it's 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 quite an early episode. It might be two or three. But it's a fight sequence anyway, where Daredevil basically fights a room full of guys. But it's like in a corridor and you see it kind of going, the the camera stays pretty fixed and you see Mm -hmm. it kind of going in and out. And it is literally art. I mean, it's beautiful. Really is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, And for that, yeah, for that alone... I gave that episode a free pass, you know, because I was a bit like, oh, this is, this is not a very strong episode. And that happened. I thought, well, okay. Can't argue with that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I don't know if I mentioned this last week, and we moved <laughs> past Daredevil, I swear. But uh, <laughs> is something that you see that that character do is figure things out. Mm-hmm. Detective work almost. Like he's mm-hmm. going through and putting the clues together, figuring things out. Mm. He's the first Marvel character, I think, that we really have seen that with. Except perhaps, you know, Captain America with him trying to put things together in the Avengers show. But uh, that was just a really quick thing. But every, the whole plot thing through Daredevil, he's always figuring things out. He's always doing some sort of detective work, even though he's not a detective, to to understand what's going on. I think as well the sense of his vulnerability. You know, Mm -hmm. I felt genuinely tense watching that show. Yeah, I did too at times, actually. Uh, and I think that's a real achievement because although I, I mean I love the other Marvel films, I generally don't feel too worried. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty okay, sure okay. they're all going to be okay at the end of the day. And in Daredevil, I wasn't actually. I wasn't sure it was all going to be okay. Well, I mean, you have a a vigilante hero. He's he's not got a suit of armor. He doesn't have super strength or anything. He's just honestly, he's got enhanced senses, yeah. but he's just a guy. So yeah. he he's he can get stabbed. He can get shot. So. Yeah, he's he's not a superhero really, but he it's a really compelling show. And yeah, I recommend I, if you haven't watched it yet, dear listener, 
please go watch Daredevil. <laughs> yes. So, uh, other than Agents of Shield, I've also caught up on The Flash. Now, another comic book TV show, obviously. Have you watched The Flash? I have watched a, a again if the first four episodes or so, something like that. And your thoughts? I think the guy who plays the Flash is great, um, and I I like elements of it, but I, I know a lot of my friends love it. But I have to admit, it's not it's not completely won me over. Now, do you like Arrow? Uh, I haven't watched the Arrow actually. Okay. I, I know they cross over as well, and they're connected in in a kind of DC universe connection way as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, so when you look at the Flash, he's obviously got superpowers. Mm-hmm. Um, Arrow doesn't. He's just kind of like Daredevil, well-trained. So you may enjoy Arrow, possibly. Um, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with the Flash, that, that there were some things that just bugged me with his powers. So, for example, I mean, I, I hate to be kind of super nitpicky, but I watched, <laughs> a, I watched an episode, and um, he was up against someone who could duplicate themselves. Mm-hmm. And there was a scene where he got kind of overwhelmed by all these duplicates. And yet, you know, he's he's the Flash. I mean, he is so... F- the, the duplicates are all ordinary guys. And the Flash is so fast. There's a scene in, in... It might even be the same episode, but it's in one of these episodes where he delivers a monologue at super speed while this while the, the character that he loves is effectively about to pour a coffee. I mean, he literally is like blurring around the room, pausing to deliver lines. He's moving so fast, she's not even finished pouring her drink by the time he's finished this quite long monologue. And yet, he can be grabbed by a guy who has normal... You know, the the fact there are hundreds (laughs) of them, it seems completely irrelevant. So, it I don't know, my kind of... There felt like inconsistencies in the way they used his powers. And I think that kind of thing switched me off. Yeah. So, I I appreciate... I appreciate I am a super picky person. There may be many of your listeners now who now hate me because they love the Flash, but <laughs> there you go. But I no, think I mean, the guy it, who plays the Flash is very watchable. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, good. good casting, obviously, yeah. with, with Grant Guston, I think is, is the character name. Mm. But with... So you can kind of appreciate, possibly, is that he's learning in this... This is the first season, so he's learning mm. how to be the Flash. He's learning to be faster yeah. and learning how to deal with his powers and really how to use them. You could argue that point, but I mean, I can see what you're saying. If for for a show perspective, honestly, they're just doing it to to build suspense, to kind of manufacture you to to watch things and make a show. Because if he is the Flash and he's the fastest man alive, yeah, he should have no problem just like running circles around those guys and just tying them up or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it it is a good show though, just to watch and uh, appreciate for a comic book TV show. We have so many to choose from now. Yeah. Which, you know, years ago, like. Uh, even two or three years ago, there was like nothing. Mm. No, Smallville. This is... No, I quite liked Smallville. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that watch... was the only one. Yeah, I didn't watch the later stuff of it, but I really enjoyed the early stuff. And, and uh, you know, the way they used Lex Luthor as well was really good. Um, it was kind of like Dawson's Creek or something along those lines meets superheroes to me. A little bit. Um, Which is not... kind of like how The Flash is, too, honestly. There's a lot of mm. young drama type things. Like, oh, I love you. Or no, I love you. <laughs> but I also think that's that's sort of a staple of the comics, too. You know, you often a lot of the the early stories, you know, say Spider-Man, for example, being a, a kind of a young guy and mm-hmm. it being about his love life or lack of it yeah. and, the compl- and the complications thereof. So I, I think that is sort of 
part of the show. I'm quite excited about the new Supergirl TV show. Okay. <laughs> Which I know um, is quite controversial for, for lots of reasons. <laughs> so I just have, I have to comment on this. So CBS, you, you watched the six-minute-long like, first-look trailer thing? Um, well, I glanced at it because I don't, I don't like spoilers. And for every, what everyone told me, that was pretty much a synopsis of the first season or something in six minutes. So I just kind of watched bits. Um, and yeah, it, there was some of it seemed quite heavily rom-com-y, which, you know, isn't necessarily my scene. But I think it's cool that we've got, you know, there aren't many superhero TV shows, as you said, until recently. And how many of them have a female lead? Yeah, I mean, really, you don't have any with a female lead yet. No, and and how many superhero movies do we have with a female lead? It's a travesty. Right? (laughs) The last one we had, I think, was Elektra or Catwoman, one of those two. Yeah, so, and God, that Catwoman movie is dire. It's horrendous. So, (laughs) so the fact that we have what looks like a high production value series coming out with a female lead in it, and what looks like quite a few female prime characters as well, is it, you know I'm I'm excited actually of course Agent Carter which I haven't seen because it's not out in the UK that was good what that's ironic I know and <laughs> isn't it it's well it's not just ironic it's it's tragic because everyone tells me it's an amazing show and I'm desperate to see it but it hasn't come out here yet that is a weird how how so I don't know people hate us I I don't know maybe it's punishment <laughs> for something if if it is I'm sorry and how please... do you, how do you get Agents of Shield but not Agent Carter it's just to do with you know. I guess who's selling what and who who's but basically no one has bought it over here. What channel do they air uh, Agents of Shield on? Um, you know that's a great question. I think uh, there are probably thousands of people listening to this screaming like you <laughs> idiot. Of course it's on. Oh, uh, was it on Sky? It might have been on Sky. I can't. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, Agents. Uh, sorry, A- Agent Carter is not. Sadly has not made it here. But hmm. either when it does, or when it comes out on DVD, or Netflix gets it, or whatever, then I will be totally watching that. Yeah. I've heard I have to think it's, yeah, I have to think it's coming to Netflix soon, because the first season was ended, you know, a few weeks ago. Mm. So yeah. it should be soon. But that was good. That was a really well-done show, actually. So that is, I think, the first female-led, Agent Carter is the first female-led show. And Supergirl is going to be the first DC female-led show. So I think that is a really cool thing. And, and you know, the more of that, the better, really. I really want Supergirl to be good because, yeah. I, because I want it to be... I mean, you look at comic books, right? You have Spider-Gwen right now, which is really cool. Um, you have Princess Leia, the Star Wars comic, that's a good comic book with a female lead. You have a lot of strong superhero characters that are female, like Wonder Woman or... You know, Black uh, Black Widow. Yeah. That would have really compelling, really good stories. They just, I don't understand when it comes to translate those stories or those characters to the television landscape, how, why it's so hard for people to, to do. You know what I mean? I think there's, a, I mean, I don't know, but my suspicion is is that there's a lot of kind of old school thinking at the top end of Hollywood. And this idea that, a female-led superhero movie just won't sell. And a kind of a, a fear of putting the money forward. You know, if because I think if, say, Supergirl is hugely successful, and then you'll see more shows that have female leads. 
uh, or sorry, I should say superhero shows that have female leads. And if they were to bring out a superhero movie with a female lead character and it was to be massively successful, you'd see them popping up all over the place. But I think it's, I think it's old school thinking, the patriarchy and, and fear of losing money. That have, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And I, I have to say, like, the next Wonder Woman is coming out. It's on the schedule for DC to make a Wonder mm. Woman movie. So I'm looking forward to when that comes out because that I really want them to do it right because Wonder Woman has a really interesting story. So with yeah. them with them having that option to tell a good story, they might look, okay, so they probably the executives look at unfortunately Catwoman and Elektra as the last examples <laughs> of female-led superhero movies and how poorly they did. It wasn't because it was a female superhero movie, it was because it was a horrible story and just yeah. horribly acting. But this comes down to the key problem that when you only have one or two examples, um, then every, all, so much weight is put upon them. And as you say, they're not judged on the merit of a movie. They're judged on the merit of being a female-led movie. And that's the problem. It's in the same way that mm. you know Black Widow in The Avengers has the issue of being the only female. So she is kind of having to... She, she is judged much more harshly. Whereas if there were... You know, one of the good things about the way things seem to be going is that there's a, there are going to be more women in, in future Avengers movies. Mm -hmm. So that means that and Scarlet witch. Yeah. So that means that, um, it's not one female character representing all of femaledom. It's going to be, you know, so therefore you can have variety and you can, uh, I think it'll, it'll make things better, Mm -hmm. but yes, we shall see. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm pleased from that point of view anyway, that Supergirl is, is coming out. And the other thing that I'm kind of glad about in a way is that, See, I, I did, did. Did you see Man of Steel? Yeah. See, now I didn't like Man of Steel very much um, for lots of reasons that probably we we you may not get me to get into my Man of Steel rant, but I'll have see, you on the Man of Steel episode. <laughs> if, if you haven't, yeah, that'd be great. But but and and I I think it was cool they were trying to do something different with Man of Steel, you know. Mm-hmm. But I also feel that for me personally, there is something quintessentially Superman that wasn't present in Man of Steel. Mm-hmm. Um, as in, he, you know, there wasn't a lot of saving people at all. He didn't show a lot of concern for people except for the very end when he, spoilers, is fighting Zod, but... Well, but does he even then? I mean, you know, when you consider spoilers, spoilers here, people, at the end of the film, they've trashed the city. They've mm-hmm. completely trashed the city. There is not one scene of Superman doing things like checking to see if people are okay, using his X-ray vision to scan the rubble for trapped people. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't rebuild anything. Saving there's, buses. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's nothing. He, he basically, he, I mean, obviously he fights off the enemy, but, you know, and the only other scene we get after that, I think, uh, again, still in spoiler territory if you're checking in, folks, um, <laughs> is that he trashes a satellite because he doesn't like being watched. <laughs> you know? It's like... Uh-huh. But, now, it may be that that was, you know, there just wasn't time in the final edit and they cut those scenes out. But one of the things that I liked about Superman was that he, you know, he was a good guy. We've got a, we've got a real plethora of heroes who are grey or have dark, edgier sides. Batman. You know, and that's cool. That's, that's totally cool. Um, but, yeah, it, it made me sad. And... I could easily get this could segue into a kind of rant about the new DC movie. <laughs> Which one, Suicide Squad or Batman v Superman? Batman v Superman. 
Because as far as I can tell, they're kind of doing like a Dark Knight Returns. Which is an excellent storybook, but it's... Oh, it's phenomenal. Again, but it's, it doesn't but present al- Superman in a good light either. But also, it's, it's a... When Superman and Batman meet in that comic, it is based on a massive long history. Exactly, the yeah. They know each other. So, so they've earned that. When, when they start to have problems, it's earned and we care. Whereas in this movie, they haven't earned anything. And I think one of the things that Marvel did brilliantly was giving the, the characters introductory movies. So that when we got to Avengers, we didn't have to have long origin stories or, you know, that these characters were fleshed out and they, ha- they felt established. And quite a few of them had already met. You know, people like Black Widow and Iron Man had already met in previous films. And obviously Nick Fury had met nearly all of them previously. So there was a... I think it, it meant with Avengers they could kind of get on and do the film. And my fear is, is that this, the Batman-Superman thing is that, that there is no history with these characters. There's nothing to really care about between them, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. Just me. But I, I'm, my hopes are set very low for that film. Yeah. I uh, I was talking, like I said, uh, you know, with uh, one of my friends at work. And we were talking about after the trailer came out, if you are optimistic about that movie, if you think it's going to be a good movie... You are a hopeless optimistic. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe so. The, the, do you ever watch the How It Should Have Ended cartoons? Oh, yeah, that was a little, that's great. Because the How It Should Have Ended take on the trailers, because it came out obviously at the same time as the Star Wars trailer was brilliant. If anyone's not seen that, it's well worth checking out. Uh huh. Because they did one about the, the trailer when it first came out, the How the Batman v Superman trailer should have ended. That was brilliant. I haven't seen... I, I didn't know they did it for trailers now, so I, I guess I haven't seen this particular one that you're referencing then. Uh, okay, yeah. So if you if you go to their site, they've got the how the Batman v Superman trailer should have ended, and they do their own take on it, and it's lovely. But they also do a thing where they're talking about trailers later on, talking, comparing the trailer for their movie with... This is Batman and Superman in the cafe. Comparing that with the Star Wars trailer, and that's also <laughs> beautiful. So, yeah, if... It, if you like that kind of stuff, it's well worth checking out. The Star Wars trailer was immaculate compared to oh. uh, Batman v Superman. See, now, the thing is, you know, my my kind of love of Star Wars was seriously kicked in the teeth when the prequel movies came out those years ago. Um, so, I've, you know, I came to that trailer very jaded. I was like, come on, trailer, take your best shot. <laughs> and actually... I got to the end of that trailer and I thought, I really want to see these films now. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I don't have a lot of faith in J.J. Abrams, Abrams, to be honest. Um, but having seen like that trailer... Star Trek? His Star oh, Trek remake? Oh, God, I hate that Star Trek. I hate them <laughs> so much. This is funny. Anyone who doesn't know me probably thinks I'm a very bitter, twisted human being. I'm normally quite <laughs> positive about things. But, um, yeah, I, I've, uh, I've, I've wasted a lot of my life ranting about these movies. Um, but... Actually, the, the, if anyone likes the io9 website, io9 did a great piece on Star Trek Into Darkness, which pretty much sums up my feelings perfectly for it. So, um, But anyway, well, not, not going into the dark place, um, <laughs> despite my concerns about him as a director, that trailer was, as you say, immaculate. It was wonderful. Just the shot of the Star Destroyer in the sands. Oh, God, I love just, that, that opening shot. That was just shot. beautiful. So, you know, it opens up, you get the X-Wing in. That, that would be enough, honestly, the X-Wing. But then yeah. you see the Star Destroyer, it's like, ah! It was, it was a wonderful thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, 
I have to say, if it is really awful, if it is like another Jar Jar Binks back from the dead kind of experience, then that will be it then. I think that I will walk away and I'll treasure my original movies and that will be the end of it. But I'm I'm genuinely hopeful um, that this is going to be amazing. So I have to ask you a question then. As a Star Wars fan of the old movies, but you didn't like the prequels, mm-hmm. I wonder, are you looking forward to Rogue One? Sorry, am I looking forward to... Rogue One. The, is... the Star Wars movie that's coming out next year. Um, I don't... The thing is, you see, I generally avoid stuff. Oh, okay. You don't. Like, okay. as in trailers. And so I know... I don't know much about it because... I, you know, I wouldn't... And to be honest, I wouldn't normally watch the Star Wars trailer. But again, because I was jaded, I thought, well, I'll have a look. Because everyone was raving about it. Um... I don't like to see too much of a film before I go in because a lot of trailers I feel like they they over show. Oh yeah, they, they do. They, um, which a lot of people seem to love, but I I don't. I like to just kind of see the story as the director kind of intended in the right order. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the quick answer is I don't know. But if, what what is the premise for Rogue One? What's the so the the quick and dirty premise that they kind of gave at celebration was Rogue One is the the Saving Private Ryan type movie of how the Rebels got the Death Star plans. Okay. Well, maybe. I mean, I can't say I'm super excited about it, but, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to give it a check out, I guess. The reason why I ask is because it's a prequel movie, technically. Ah, okay. See, now, it wasn't the fact that the prequels were prequels that was the problem for me. I actually think the story of Darth Vader's kind of rise and then fall is quite a, a beautiful one, actually. I'd be very interested in it. But it was just the way it was told. Oh, yeah. And, and it was the kind of the slaying of the mysticism. You know, I, once you started talking about midichlorians and things, I thought, oh, really? And, um, and things like Jar Jar Binks, for me, made a mockery of so much. Not, not just, I mean... I know that the character in himself was annoying, but because he was able to buffoon his way through a lot of the problems, you know, he's in a war zone and he just sort of blunders about <laughs> accidentally shooting people and things. It means that this supposed threat isn't a threat. Mm-hmm. If this guy can bumble his way through an arm, a droid army, then why is anyone worried about this droid army? You know, I, I've, whereas, you know, I think of all the prequel movies, the third one was the best, the best of all of them, I thought. I thought that had some genuinely good moments in it. You know, not not to be a Jardar defender, but <laughs> based on your Fight. your your reason for <laughs> your reason for not liking Jardar, you could say that the droids had a logic programming to anticipate normal movement from a human being, and the fact Ooh. that he was so clumsy and didn't no, know how well. to predict his movements. <laughs> you could, you could, you could say he's like some kind of drunken monkey master. Drunken master, there you go. And that's how it works, but I think you would be stretching things pretty epically <laughs> in that way. So did you avoid then the Clone Wars and the Rebels TV show? Um, are we talking about the animated stuff now? Yes. No, I watched some, I quite liked the Clone Wars stuff. I didn't see all of it. I saw bits of it, but I thought that was quite nicely done, actually. There's actually really good storytelling in both Clone Wars and Rebels, and yeah, depending on how far things. you've gotten in Rebel or in Clone Wars, it gets really good towards the end. Like season two and a half or season three on is just there's some really, really, really good story arcs. There are some groaners, 
there is some Jar Jar, <laughs> but they're really good stories. Yeah, I, th- I think they were actually much better. Uh, I haven't, I haven't seen Rebels, but I've seen qu- uh, not lots, but I've seen quite a few Clone Wars episodes, and I, th- I was genuinely impressed by what I saw, and I liked the fact they had kind of a proper story arc and continuing stories and characters that came back and consequences of actions and you know there was a lot to like I thought in that and I thought the animation style was great too. Mm-hmm. Really polished animation mm. once it gets like to season three or four, on and that's on Netflix too. So if you wanted to watch like the entire or any of the episodes, it's all on Netflix to watch. So pretty readily available if if you haven't seen the Clone Wars. Yeah, I may well do that. It's one of those things that um, I, I'm a, a complete lover of the Avatar cartoons. Oh, um, the last Airbender. Yeah, and also um, the the second set, so Korra. Um, the Legend of Korra as well. Mm-hmm. So we, with as a family, we watched like an episode a night. We we went through the Avatar three books, um, and it was just astonishingly wonderful. If anyone's not watched that, by the way, you've got you've just got to stop what you're doing right now and go and watch uh, Avatar: Last Man. It's been those, It's I mean, it's not even that it's the what a great piece of kids' TV. It's actually just one of the best pieces of TV. Full stop. It's wonderful. Um, but yeah, we're because in the UK we're punished. Uh, I, we've only just been able to get hold of season three of Korra. Really? I know. I know. Huh. So, um, and I think season four is going to come to a soon, but we watched the last episode literally just before I came on this, uh, this podcast. So I was, I th- and I, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it, yeah, I, I was, I think it's a very brave ending to season three they've gone for. I think it's no, I have, to, I have to ask another question based on, on the, the distribution for the UK. So, are you not able then to go to like Amazon and buy a TV series digitally, like as it airs? Uh, generally not. Really. So unless unless they release it, obviously if they release it on DVD or, the, or whatever, that's fine. Um, but by and large, yeah, you you have to wait for it to come out in you know in the UK. Huh. Unless that's, you're that's unless you're willing to be naughty. And you know, change your IP location. Yes. So, <laughs> so, if you're willing to be naughty, that's fine. But as as uh, as someone who isn't naughty generally, uh, I have to wait and just gnash my teeth and try and avoid spoilers on the internet for as long as I can. That that's the hardest part, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> is avoiding spoilers because I mean, even like I missed you know or I didn't watch. I I don't get the. I don't have cable anymore, which is mm-hmm. what I had before to watch the TV show. So I'd watch it like the night that it airs. So yeah. now I'm watching everything on Hulu, which is like the day after it airs. And so uh, like I'll be going through on Twitter or something like that, just looking at my stream, and then like, oh, dang it, I didn't want to see that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we've gone off the rails already. So <laughs> let, me, let me just kind of quickly go over what I've been entertained by as far as the game side of things go. Sure. Um, now, how do you game? What do you play games on? So because I'm a writer, uh, I made a decision to not game on my laptop because I know that if I have a game on my laptop I'd probably my, my willpower is very weak that I would uh, I would play that instead of working so I tend to game on a PS4 now ah okay uh, so I, yeah I game on consoles and have done for a few years and I I work on on my laptop okay so that could actually lead into a good topic later but so I was just curious on that so uh, <laughs> sure. I, I primarily play on Xbox One, and mm-hmm. there was a free game that came out, actually two free games that came out recently that I figured I would check out. One guy sent me a message to one of my friends and said, hey, check out Air Mech Arena. And I think it's also on PS4 now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it is an interesting little little game that I was playing a little bit of. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Halo Wars on 360. If you ever played uh, that, yeah, yeah. So you kind of it's kind of like an RTS, and it it's pretty cool, pretty well done. But it does have those little uh, microtransactions that make it free. So it's free to play type game. But it is fun. And I do recommend if you if you're interested in like, you know, mech RTS, Halo Wars type combat on Xbox One or PS4 to check out Air Mech Arena. Uh, the other game that I played was a free with gold game recently. That's Pool Nation FX. And I was just I had to look at, load this up and just check out why it was a free you know, for, for two months in a row, which I know that they've been doing that for a lot of games. It's kind of like two months for all the games recently, but it was getting a lot of slack from another podcast I listened to, Podcast Unlocked, and they were talking about, it, maybe it's the best pool game ever, we don't know, and I was like, you know what, I haven't even played this game yet, <laughs> so I loaded it up and checked it out, and it's actually not a bad pool game, if you like pool. It takes, there's a learning curve on how to play that would take you at least about 15 to 20 minutes to kind of understand how the mechanics work and everything. But then after that, if you like pool, I think you'll like the game. So, Pool Nation FX, free on Xbox One currently with Games with Gold. If you haven't loaded it up yet, and if you have it sitting on your hard drive, check it out. Just just load it up and see what you think. If it's not your kind of game, it's not your kind of game, but hey, it's free. And then... Uh, still been playing some pinball FX when I have time. It's perfect because if I have like five or ten minutes that I can throw up and do a pinball match, uh, I've been loading up all the Star Wars tables and just playing through all those. Uh, they're so cool just to see all the different animations and hear the sound effects and all the dialogue from the movies and the TV shows. So just been playing through some of those as I can. But most of my time has probably been with our topic for discussion this week, which we'll get into later, is Dragon Age Inquisition. I've been playing the Jaws of a Khan DLC, just to make sure I had that completed before the <laughs> the podcast today. So, that's really what I've been entertained by. And now, Peter. Hello. What have you been entertained by? Well, if we're talking on, in, on a gaming front... Um, Games, ha- TVs, movies? Well, so, uh, we finished Daredevil... Uh, fairly recently on TV and we were kind of casting about because we were watching an episode a night and it was amazing. So, uh, as I say, we've been watching Korra Season 3 has been our kind of TV family thing. Now, I have a question for you. Yeah. You've said the word family a couple times. Do you have children? Yeah, so I've I've got a son. And did he watch Daredevil with you? Oh, no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. I was, I was just curious. He's like, he's literally just turned eight. I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, no. but he can watch. So we watch Avatar and things together. My wife and I, we watched, um, we watched Daredevil. So we were casting around for a non-family thing to watch. Uh, and people were recommending, because Spartacus has come on to, to Netflix. That's not a family thing. <laughs> which is not, a, again, not a family Definitely show. Definitely not is confused, a family show. Not a family show. Um, but it's got the same writer as Daredevil. Really, I didn't know that. Interestingly, yeah, um, and I don't. I don't know if you've watched it. Uh, we've we're gonna we're like one episode away from the season finale of season one. So we're we, we've watched. I'm trying to think how many episodes are in season. We've watched say a dozen or so episodes now. I think there's thirteen or so usually in the showtime. Yeah, type. yeah. So we've we watched about twelve episodes in, and I've got to say, I went in with very low expectations. I didn't know who the writer was at the time, and I just thought. 
this is going to be like just a kind of a flesh show, really, mm-hmm. um, with a, with a bit of violence in it. And it is that. I mean, there is a lot of there is a lot of naked flesh on display, male Quite and female gratuitous. flesh. Gratuitous. I mean, and in a really unashamed, let's just enjoy really pretty bodies kind of way. And I, you know, and I salute that. But it, but it's also really well acted, and it's also really good in terms of tension. You know, they. I, I was surprised by how much I cared about the characters, um, and they do a lot of twists. It often surprises me. You know, where I'm not sure which way it's going to go on an episode, and people I think who are going to survive don't, uh, or people get injured, or you know, uh, and it, it it's just brilliantly told. So I, you know, it's. And it's interesting because they've obviously got a limited budget. You know, there's some, but they've sort of made it a feature, if that makes sense. You know, the so when there's a fight or there's gore, it's almost cartoon-like in the way that you get these kind of gouts of blood, and it kind of goes into slow mo and and the way it works. But it's actually really well done. Well, so three hundred was a big influence on that TV show, I believe, too. Yes, I think it, I can see that. Um, but no, I was really impressed. Spartacus, as I say, I thought it was going to be pretty awful, but maybe a bit of eye candy. But actually, it is eye candy. I mean, the, the number of beautiful bodies in that show, my goodness. <laughs> but um, it's also, yeah, it's also very well acted, a lot of fun. It's not deep. It's not going to kind of ask you deep philosophical questions or make you consider your own life. But it is very good entertainment. And, it's, and actually, one of the other things that's cool is the, um, the language. As in the way the characters speak. Apologies. Um, you're right. Yeah, well, in in the TV show, they they go apologies a lot. That what the uh, yes. uh, the owner yeah. of the of the the Dominus guy is that his name? Yes, yes. Um, and and yeah, the, the kind of so it's not. It doesn't feel like they're speaking. I don't know some kind of ye olde fashioned language, but it is noticeably <laughs> different. So it stands out. If it's got, it's got a nice feel to it. I'm trying to think if it's based on the rhythms of Latin. I'm sure I've heard something along those lines. The other thing is, is the swearing, which I won't repeat here, but the swearing is magnificent. <laughs> I mean, as in it's really beautifully used. Um, but yeah, if you don't like swearing and you don't like gratuitous sex and violence, don't watch it. You'll hate it. But if you, if you quite like those things and you like really good storytelling, then it's great. So that has entertained me. On a gaming front, very quickly... Uh, yeah, Dragon Age Inquisition was the last kind of major game that I played. And I haven't played the DLC yet, so I'm looking forward to chatting to you about that uh, a bit later. I've actually just started my second playthrough of Dragon Age as well. So good. So we can, we can talk about, about that shortly. Um, there's a few games that have come out free on the, on the PlayStation Network. So I played uh, Transistor that was, I really enjoyed for the... Um, I'm trying to have a quick way to describe it. But the thing that's great about it is it's massively customizable. So your 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 character, you're in this kind of weird futuristic world, and you're trying to find out what's happened to your character, what's going on, and the story very slowly unfolds. Um, and you have this mysterious kind of automated enemy that pop up and try and kill you. And you have the transistor, which is this kind of super weapon, and it basically allows you to. So you can fight in normal time, which is generally really bad for you and gets you killed, but then you can effectively freeze time and plan out your moves. Um, and you have a limited number of effectively like action points you can spend, and you then carry out those moves in super fast time. 
and and then you have to wait for your bar to charge up. And while you're waiting for your bar, you run around in real time trying not to die. And then when it's charged up, you can plot your moves. But there's a massive, massive number of combinations you can you can set up for different moves and things. It's really, really intricate. So that was cool. Uh, a game called Race the Sun, I think it's called, which is a very simple game. Basically, you're a, you're like a little wipeout style ship. You are flying towards the sun, and your ship is powered by solar energy. And as the sun sets, your you know if the sun sets, you die. And there are icons you can find that will basically give you a bit more time and raise the sun in the sky a bit. And if you pass through shadows, you slow down. Um, and it's just one of these games that plays extremely fast. You die about every 30 seconds, or you do if you're me, because I'm not very good at it. Um, <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's just very slick. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and the idea is, it's, just, it's very old school. You know, you just got to amass lots of points. It's very simple, um, but kind of compulsive as well. Um, and that's probably the main things. And the only other thing I'd mention that, that hit PlayStation Network that I played well, two things, actually. One is Abe's Odyssey. They've given it a remake and brought it out on PSN. I don't know if you ever played The Odd World, Abe's Odyssey. Back Long in the day. time ago, yeah. It's, which is just a gorgeous platformer, really nice humour, very dark. Um, it's, it's worth a look if people haven't checked that out. And I'm struggling to remember the name of it. It's something to do with the swan. Unfinished <laughs> swan? Yes, Unfinished Swan. I've just started looking at Unfinished Swan, uh, which if anyone doesn't know... It's this game which is everything is white. You're literally in a, a kind of featureless white place. Um, and you have like a paintbrush. And you can flick paint. And the world actually does exist. You just can't see it. And when the paint catches on an object, it defines it. So it's really it's, a, it's just a really interesting twist on a, on a first-person kind of 3D environment. Because instead of just charging through this environment, you're literally having to find it. And sometimes you can explore half of a room and not realise the other half is like a massive hallway or a pit drop to death or until you flick the paint. So it just it's such a different play experience from a very old... You know, it just really freshens it up. So I've been very impressed by that too. Huh, that's cool. Hmm. Yeah, and like you just literally you don't know. So you could be in a corridor, you could be on a mountaintop, you just don't know until you start painting the environment in around you. Huh, Interesting. It's really cool. And the other thing is, if you overpaint things, they become like just black splatters, so they lose their definition. So you have to be kind of careful with how much paint you apply. So, it's, yeah, it's nice. Hmm. That's cool. So, with that kind of game, what, what's the goal? So, it, with the game, you're, you're trying to track down the swan. Um, there seems to be a lot of games lately that are quite sort of tragic in their opening um, in terms of the real world. I'm thinking about things like Child of Light, but lots of others uh, that have come out. And in this one, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly, but essentially you're like a little boy and your mother has all these paintings that she used to, to do and she's now gone and you're alone. She's I'm not sure if she's dead or she's... I can't remember, but it's really sad. And then one day the the boy kind of effectively wakes up in the world of her painting. And the swan, which is her favourite painting, is like alive in this world and you're trying to find it. So the goal is you're always trying to follow the swan and occasionally you'll find its footprints. And, and track I it. take it that that was the painting that she was working on when she died? Uh, no, I think it was her favourite painting, but I think oh, she okay. never finished it. So, yeah. 
and and all of the things that she because in the opening sequence you see like this wall with all her paintings and all of those things appear in the world you find them as you're going around as as objects or as as characters so very cool hmm. so have you so you've been playing some games watching some tv shows see any interesting movies uh, well, the last film that I watched was uh, Age of Ultron. Hmm, good movie. It was a good movie. I've only seen it once. I want to see it a second time just to kind of pick up on some plot points that I think I may have not really fully grabbed on to the first time. I've heard a lot of people say that it is better on a second viewing. That's what I've heard. Um, I have to say, I I enjoyed the film, and I think... Things like the party scene was superlative. Oh, that I was like. really good. And and generally speaking, the the amount of charm in that show, like the in that film, the number of charming people. There's like it's almost like if you get any any more of them, there will actually be some kind of implosion of charm, <laughs> and the world will be sucked into this kind of gaping hole. But it, I mean, they are just incredibly likable, and uh, and it is brilliant. Having said all of that, I don't, I didn't feel it was as good as the first one. Yeah, and so we've we've discussed this on the the podcast already with Age of Ultron, and I ranked it. I actually ranked it above the first one, but below Guardians of the Galaxy. That's interesting. See, now I've not seen Guardians of the Galaxy yet. Really? I know. I know. That's nothing to do with the UK. That's just to do with me being useless. <laughs> it's not out over there yet. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that? That would be really harsh, wouldn't it? Um, but after watching Age of Ultron, I went back and watched Winter Soldier. That is amazing. And the Winter Soldier is, I mean, which I already loved, but it made me really appreciate what an incredibly tight film that is. There's not a wastage scene in it. It's, you know, it is brilliant. Um, and I thought Age of Ultron was very good. It had lots of good bits, but it also, it felt, I don't know... Like I came out of Avengers One pretty much punching the air and cheering, mm-hmm. and Winter Soldier I came out of again, you know, just in awe of it. I thought it was a wonderful film, and yeah, Age of Ultron I came out and I thought, yeah, it was good, but that, but I, I felt slightly critical of it as well, which I haven't done with many of the Marvel films to be honest. I think they've been absolutely phenomenal. Um. <laughs> It's like I can imagine someone listening going, "He doesn't like Age of Ultron that much as well. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like Superman. He doesn't like Age of Ultron. What does he like? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's wrong with this guy? But I, do, I really like Winter Soldier, though. If anyone's wondering, and and the first Avengers movie, I loved that. Yeah, Winter Soldier was my top, and then Guardians, and then Age of Ultron, then the Avengers. Interesting. Well, I ha- I'll, I'll come back to you once I've checked out Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians is good. I I mean, don't go in there with like super hyped everybody or no. Nathan says it was the best movie ever. No, I'm don't don't do that. <laughs> go in there with measured expectations to cuz that's one of the things that will kill a movie if you've mm. heard it's so good from yeah, you know, different agree. people. But your your, you know, humor type or you what you're expecting from a movie may be completely different. Cuz I mean, honestly, I went into it with measured or lower expectations. Mm. So that's Probably one of the reasons why I like it so much better now is because I didn't have the big expectation going in. Yeah. So, but yeah, I definitely uh, say you should check out Guardians of the Galaxy because uh, I'm pretty sure that that's in the UK. Yes, no, it really is. And, <laughs> and you know, it's actually not even that expensive now, so I should, <laughs> I should get onto that. 
All right. Well, what do you say we move on to a topic for this week? Let's do it. Now, I got a couple here. So the first one I wanted to ask, and I know we're, we're getting close to the hour mark, but season passes. You, now, you're a gamer. Mm-hmm. And what do you... What, what's your feeling on season passes, first off? I've got mixed feelings about season passes, in a way. Um, what I like about them is, generally speaking, you're getting a cheaper deal than if you get all the individual DLC. Um, so I like that. And I quite like the idea that it's all going to kind of roll in, you know, that kind of oh, the anticipation that I've got it set up and it's going to come in. So from that point of view, I like it. But it kind of annoys me if I get a season pass and then there's other DLC that's not included in the season mm. pass. I feel mm-hmm. like my season pass should cover everything. And the other thing, it's always this kind of thing with DLC. You know, in, So you've mentioned Dragon Age Inquisition DLC. And they've also released some free DLC as well um, recently as well uh, mm-hmm. for the game. I don't begrudge them that because I feel there is so much content in the main game that I'm quite happy about that. But some games where I feel like the DLC really should be part of the main game, particularly if it's fixing problems or if the main game feels short, it kind of annoys me that I've paid full whack for a game and then I'm having to pay for the extra, if that makes sense. Right. Um, but, yeah, going back to season passes, I, I, yeah, I guess I guess that's what... My, my, I have mixed feelings about them. I think <laughs> if they include everything and I think if they're... so. Say Borderlands, for example, I think did very good DLC. And that included uh, everything, I believe, that, in Season Pass. Yeah. Uh, and that, and I always felt like when I got the next bit of Borderlands DLC, like I was really getting something interesting and fun that I could, I could kind of sink my teeth into. And that they did interesting things with the formula in the DLC as well. So I was very happy with that. Um, my, my son's playing um, Lego Batman 3 at the moment and there was a season pass for that which was okay I mean you got like a a, you got characters and you got a level each time but at the speed at which you can tear through that and these characters often are whilst it's really cool to have those characters they normally don't bring any new abilities to the table that you didn't already have seven versions of already (laughs) Uh so I you know I'm I'm less impressed by that in a way uh, maybe the, you know, was with the Borderlands stuff, I felt like you were getting hours and hours of of extra content. Mm-hmm. Whereas with some stuff, I mean, you know, if you if you can play through the DLC content in an hour, then then I I start to take issue with it. I mean, obviously, a lot of this DLC stuff is quite cheap now, but still. So, what can uh, how many season passes would you say that you've purchased so far? Oh, not many. Um, so again, with the Borderlands stuff we did, with Batman we did. Uh, I'm sure there was for another game that we did, but no, I'm I'm normally quite stingy or careful with season pass stuff. Now, so that being the case, you've have you ever purchased? Because uh, I know on Xbox One and PS4 is probably the same. Is that you can pre-order a game and you can mm-hmm. pre-order a game with the season pass? Yeah. So. Have you ever done that? Have you ever bought a season pass for a game before you've actually played the game? No, I've never done that. Although I have done stuff where I've got a version of the game that has DLC bundled in with it. 
like a limited edition that has yeah X, XYZ DLC. Yes. Although I have my own issues with that as well. <laughs> as in, you know, when you when you're particularly when you have things where you have DLC that's tied to specific consoles or versions, you know. So it's like, well, if you get it on the Xbox, you get this character, and if you get it on the PlayStation, you get that character. Like it's with like, Soul well, Calibur type thing. So yes, exactly like you get that. Yoda on one, or you get yeah, uh, Darth Vader Master on another. Chief on another. Yeah, yeah, Darth Vader on another. Yep. Yeah, it, exactly that. Because it's like, well, what if I wanted Darth Vader on my console? You know? Yeah. So, so there's that, but also the whole thing where when a game comes out, I don't know. I I like the idea that I get the game and I play the game. I don't like feeling like I've got to spend extra money to get the proper experience of the game. The full sense. experience. Because yeah. I mean, it used to be. And I saw this on Facebook recently, where someone posted a picture of the way games used to be, and they put a picture of like an extra value meal from McDonald's. They had the you yeah. know the, the burger, the fries, the bur- you know the drink, and everything there. And now it's like you have the bun and meat as the game. Then you have lettuce, and then you have uh, onion and you know condiments as DLC. And then you get the season pass, and it has the drink and the fries. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's the way... I'm, it's it's a pretty apt comparison, because that's really the way it used to be with games. You look back at, like, let's say, um, Knights of the Old Republic. Oh, that was a game. That was an excellent game. It was, it was completed when it was released. You know, there mm-hmm. wasn't any of this DLC stuff with Knights of the Old Republic. But now you have a game like, uh, let's say... What's a, what's a good example of this? Um, Arkham Origin or Arkham Knight coming out? Yes. Okay. So, a the season pass for that is forty dollars. Yeah. So if you're just buying the game and the season pass, you're paying a hundred bucks for this game. But you have that, and it it gives you a new character to play as. It gives you new missions for that character to play as. So it's more story content mm-hmm. for a different character. Which you could argue it's not Batman's story, so it's not included in the main game. But at the same time, you look at a game that is complete that comes out or that came out before the whole DLC season pass race started, you had the same kind of content that you could play. So you had a separate character. Like, let's say, have you ever played Halo 2? Uh, no, I haven't. I've played Halo 3. Okay. Well, in Halo 2. You, you play as an Arbiter, and you play as Master Chief. So you play as two different characters. Mm-hmm. So let's say Halo 2 comes out, and you just get the Master Chief side of the game, and you don't get the Arbiter levels, which honestly might not be a bad thing. <laughs> but uh, it, then it adds, oh, with the Season Pass, you get to play as the Arbiter and get the complete story or the other perspective of the story. That wouldn't be right, right? I would think. Because you're buying not necessarily playing as a character but you're buying the experience playing the story and i, I mean I, as a creator as a person who writes a book you don't you don't say oh here's the here's the the preview now here's the first two chapters by season pass you get the next couple chapters and the epilogue yeah no I, I agree with that i mean i suppose you sometimes get that someone will release a book and then later on they might release a short story that is kind of filling in a gap in the book or is set just before or just or bridges books one and two, that kind of thing. I suppose it's the closest you get to that. But fundamentally, the book would be complete as a story on its own and you shouldn't need anything else. 
I guess for me, though, it all comes down to value. So if I've got a game that I've played and I've loved and it was complete and it felt really good, and then they bring out some DLC that allows me to go back to that game and enjoy it some more, then I'm, I'm happy to do that. Like Dragon Age? Like Dragon Age. Because I think that's an excellent game and it gives you huge amounts to do. There's huge amounts of like playtime in there. Um, so yeah, the idea of of having some extra content is great. But if I feel the game is short and I've paid a lot of money for it, and then I've got to pay more money. And the, and the other thing as well that I sometimes find with these things is that they will... And Dragon Age actually is an example of this, where you can get the version which gives you like some special kit. I don't know if you have this. A lot of games where if you buy it ahead of time or pre-order or whatever, they'll give you a fancy rocket launcher. Or a, a limited cool edition or day one edition, something like that. But the only thing for me about that is it then invalidates most of your early game experience because if you've got effectively the best early level kit you can have, then there's no point in looking and finding stuff in the early parts of the game because you've already got it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't have, you know, in some ways it actually makes the early part of the game less exciting. Because, yeah, you can stomp around in your cool-looking armor, but then when you find that first armor, it's, well, it's not as good as what you've already got. And then you find and the second suit of armor. You know what I mean? So it's exactly. not... Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm not so much a fan of that kind of thing. But I like anything that adds content. So, for example, in Dragon Age Origins, they had some DLC that introduced a new character. Shale. Yeah. And with Shale, there was a, a like a, an extra plot line, but also dialogue with all of the characters. You know, there must have a huge amount of work to do. Um, wasn't essential, but I thought was was quite a nice addition. Particularly if you were doing a second playthrough. Mm-hmm. Dragon Age Two, they had a similar um, person. They had like a prince, an archer guy. Was if you bought the game or pre-ordered the game, you got this signature edition that came with this other character. Ah, yeah. No, I didn't get that edition. You, did you? I, I did, uh, and I don't even know if I liked the character or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to... Because I thought Shale was quite an interesting character. Shale was cool, and Shale was always in my party, I think, for the most yeah. part. Yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoyed... And I enjoyed kind of you learning more about Shale as, as it went along. And they felt very different to everyone else. Um, yeah, I don't know about the, the Dragon Age 2 one. So how would you feel... So Knights of the Old Republic again. Um, you go into Knights of the Republic, and if you pre-order it, you get HK-47. But if you don't pre-order it, you don't get HK-47. Yeah, that would annoy me. <laughs> so, I mean, because I, I, I feel like, you know, HK-47 was a character that you could have played the entire game, I think, and never gotten anyway. But he was in it. He was in the game, and he was a great character in the game. He had some great dialogue options, some great mm. interactions. Um, and you could also play through, and you could miss characters in that game. Mm. But they were in it. Whereas now, if there is any sort of missable character, you would pay for them to download them. Like five bucks for, for this character or 20 bucks for this DLC and you get five other characters. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's In looking at season passes too, I've, I've bought in games before like uh, the limited edition that comes with a season pass. For instance, uh, Halo 4. Mm-hmm. where it comes with the other map packs and things like that, which I, I didn't 
play for very long, honestly, after that. And when those map packs came out, yeah, I downloaded them. I may have launched them, but it wasn't, I wasn't really sticking with it like I did in the beginning. Um, and a game like Destiny, I bought the limited edition of that. And when that came out, and it had the, the two other storylines, and I petered out in that game early on. Like, I got to level 20 or 27 or close to 30. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it was. I got to the raid area, and I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm kind of retiring from the game. And I still haven't played all the DLC from the first pack of DLC in that uh, season pass. And next week, the second part of it comes out. So, I mean, I, I feel like I should go and play that because I paid for it. The <laughs> other thing is that, so when I bought, there was a game on Xbox One called Sunset Overdrive, which... It looked like a cool game. It looked like a game I'd be into. But I played it for about an hour or so, and I just didn't get into it. I didn't get into the mechanics and how you moved and everything. It, but I already bought in the season pass for the game. So... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but is this more of an issue that you, you kind of need to have demos? True. Yeah, and we're in an age now where there are no demos, pretty much. Like, they're limited if few and far between. Because one of the interesting things about, uh, say, Dragon Age 2 was that there was a demo. Because I had an Xbox 360 at the time when I played Dragon Age 2. And the first sort of opening sequence, you can, in fact, a reasonably substantial bit of the game, you could just play for free. So you had a pretty good idea if you were going to like the game or not by the time you came to buy it. And one of the last other games to do that that I remember was uh, Diablo 3 um, as a kind of a big full title game that had a demo with it because you know I, I certainly on Xbox Live you could often get demos of the kind of Xbox Live games that were cheaper the arcade but, yeah the arcade stuff but not so much with the full price ones but that was really good as well you know and it seems to me if you're like you were talking about the Batman uh, sort of being like a hundred dollars for the D- for the for the DLC and the game. That if you could play a demo of the first level, a playable demo, that would be a really good thing before you make that investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've played the other Batman games, so I figure I know what I'm getting into. But still, the, with with Sunset Overdrive, I wish I would have played something to, to mm. realize that I'm not going to like these mechanics. It's just because it, the weird the way it is is like. It's built that you have to always be moving. You have to grind around on wires and jump around on stuff, which is fine. But I'm more of a of a slow-paced kind of player. Like, I love Dragon Age because it, I explore. I look around. Yeah. I kind of just take things in. Mm-hmm. And I spend 110 hours on a playthrough. <laughs> Whereas you look at Sunset Overdrive, it's built to be quick and move around, kids you from place to place. And if you're on the ground walking around, you don't get the abilities that you would that you need really to complete the game um that you would if you're grinding on wires and stuff and i know i need to go back and play it and people say once you get like two hours in it's really good but i'm like you know it really didn't sink me in after that first couple hours or that first hour here's the thing if i'm playing lots of paying lots of money to play a game and in the same way that if i'm going to you know watch a film or a tv show or something if I've got to watch six episodes of a show or play six hours of a game before I can enjoy it, 
something is wrong with that. <laughs> that uh-huh. is that is not a right experience, you know. Um, because uh, to me, that's just bad design. Yeah, it just doesn't suck you in, you know. Mm. And if it doesn't, if if your initial gut reaction isn't "I want to play more," then it's not for you, right? Unless it's a game that takes a little bit to... It's a slow burn, they say. But even then, I don't even know if I would want that. I mean, honestly, you could look at a game like Dragon Age Inquisition again. Because we're being heavy on Dragon Age books because that's our title for this week. Yeah. But you look at that game, and honestly, you could say that it it is a little slow to start. That it really doesn't start until you get we, your, uh, your Skyhold area. So are we are we now into Dragon Age? Are we can we talk about Dragon Age Inquisition at this point? Are we is that fair? Is that are we into that? I think this is a good point for us I, to I th- go into Dragon Age Inquisition. I, into I think our, we should. Yeah. So otherwise well, we're going to need a second show to, <laughs> that's to, right. to talk about it. Exactly. It's interesting you say that because I've literally today just played through the opening section. So I'm I've just hit Skyhold. Not Skyhold. I've just hit. Um, What's the first place called? Go to. Hey, Hang on a second as well. Spoilers, possibly people, if you haven't played the game. At this point, let's go ahead and say that we're going to go ahead and get into our entertaining thoughts for this week with Dragon Age Inquisition. And, yes, full of spoilers. Good, now we've got that clear. One of the things that I I was actually really impressed by, when you think about what they're trying to achieve in Dragon Age Inquisition, in other words, you've got people who've played all the previous games. You've got people who haven't ever played Dragon Age before. And they've got to take people from both ends of that spectrum and, and kind of hold their interest. And there'll be some people who know exactly what's been going on in the plot with the mages and the Templars and all of that business. And some people have got no clue whatsoever. And actually, it takes you straight into some action. There is story. They establish characters straight away. Um, your protagonist is obviously chained. And you can decide whether you're going to be kind of a paragon about this and, and fairly nice, or whether you're going to be really angry about it and how you're going to take it. And it pretty quickly introduces you to the basics as you go. So it doesn't just dump you with... Imagine if you'd never played Dragon Age and maybe not even played a you know a kind of role-playing game before on a computer. The sheer amount of stuff you have to juggle and think about. Whereas actually it brings you in, it gets you moving, it very quickly gets you into a basic combat and a bit of basic dialogue stuff where you can make some choices. And it's interesting and you're wondering, there's mystery and there's hooks and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, pretty rapidly, it gives you a party to control. And it starts giving you very s- small amounts of kit to manage in your inventory. Um, and by the time you fought your first kind of major boss, you've got the basics of party management, combat, leveling up, and all those things. And then you're at your first kind of base station where you start learning about crafting. And, and actually, I think all of that is really nicely brought in. I was thinking about it today that 
it's not too much, you know, it's quite a gentle feed of new bits of information to, ha to handle. Because when you consider all the different bits of the game, you know, because there's the whole passing judgment on the throne stuff, there's all the crafting stuff, the potion making, uh, all the inventory management, the tactical party management, all the different classes and their abilities and the skill trees to handle. That's actually a lot of stuff, I think. You know, as well as story and plot. And, and there's an, I think there's a really nice uh, weaving in. Particularly when you consider, as I say, that some people won't have ever done it before. Mm -hmm. And they have to cater for those people. It's always a delicate balance, especially when you look at an RPG. Hmm. Because people may have never played, like you said, their RPG before, which has a completely different inventory management system than, say, The Witcher will have. Or, yes. you know, the combat system will be different. It does do a good job of telling you this is how you play this is how you this is how you change between characters this mm. is how you go into your strategic view mm. i think it does a really good job honestly of getting that across quickly and in the, in an easy fashion mm. oh i thought it was gonna be a but then <laughs> no so, no but <laughs> no no buts so uh, yeah i think that is that is really good uh, and I, I th the interesting thing in terms of evolution, so I loved Dragon Age Origins. And the reason that I, one of the things I really liked about it was I thought the party members that you had, there was a, a good spread of them and a really high percentage of them that were great characters. And you had a dog. And you had a dog, which is also cool. Uh, but I'm thinking, say, particularly for me anyway, Morrigan and Alastair were kind of two of my kind of favourite party members in that. I like Morgan, and I love that she showed up back up in uh, Inquisition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She's definitely one of my favourites. And um, the only thing with Origins, and I also liked in Origins that your origin story was different. That was a really nice touch. But of course, the protagonist was effectively a bit of a blank canvas. You know, your character didn't have any voiced dialogue. Mm -hmm. And then in Dragon Age 2, they tried to do replicate what had happened in Mass Effect and give you a character. And that was quite divisive because I think Shepard was by and large loved by the gaming community. Uh, at least those people that I've kind of met, you know, they loved their Shepard that they played. Whoever they ended up looking like and whatever gender they had, etc. Whereas Hawk was quite divisive. So a lot of people didn't warm to Hawk in the same way. And that is an immediate issue because if you don't really like your protagonist, then it's very hard to enjoy the game. And in Inquisition, I think they've, they've gone a nice sort of halfway house there where you, rather than having a character given to you, you create your own character, but they've also created voices. And although you've only got limited choice, at least you can choose a bit what they sound like uh, and everything else. So I guess closer to things like um, some of the older Bioware games, I suppose. And I do like, with this game, you got the ability to choose your, your character, yeah, limited choices, I think three, uh, of how they sound, like their, their dialect. Mm -hmm. um, but then you get the, cho the choice to choose, like, are they elves, are they humans, are they Kunari, yes. are they male or female? Really in-depth character creation. I mean, you could spend an hour creating your character. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, honestly, would be well-founded because you're spending 110 or more with the character later on. 
And although I say this is my second playthrough, it's in effect my third, in that I tried a second playthrough a little while ago, and I didn't like the, the character's look, and also their voice started to grate on me after a while. <laughs> and I just couldn't, I just thought, all right, I can't do this. And I left Dragon Age for quite a while, and I've now gone back and, and recreated it, and I'm much happier. So what, what are you playing at? What did you play as first, and what was your second role? Right, so I started off as a human mage. Uh, I generally, I don't know why, but in Dragon Age games, it's become a sort of habit for me now that I start by playing a mage. Uh, and I, I thought, particularly in, in Inquisition as well, because it's it, with a whole mage Templar war, I like the idea of being a mage because it feels like the plot is more personal somehow. And some of the decisions that you have to make about, uh, and, and the kind of prejudice you meet as a mage, I quite liked. So I started as a mage, and, uh, and I also quite like tactically being a mage because sort of being, you know, unless you take the, the kind of combat mage specialty, standing back and watching everything and throwing your spells in and controlling the battlefield feels quite nice. Uh, so that was my first playthrough, and then I, I wanted a change for my second playthrough, so I've now I've played it on normal difficulty to start with, and I've now gone to hard difficulty, and I'm playing as a rogue, uh, an elven rogue. And, uh, it, and, it, and again, it just feels very, very different. Because I tend... I, I, I don't know if you, how you play it, because obviously you can switch between characters mm -hmm. and, and very much you know, play all of the classes in any playthrough with your party. But what I tend to do is I'll tactically manage from the, the tactical map, but I'll tend to be myself when I'm doing all the 3D interactive stuff, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So I'll often be like battling as me for a bit, and then if things are getting a bit complicated, I'll pull out the tactical, assign all the stuff, then go back in and play a little bit and, and, and kind of play that way. So it's, yeah, it's really nice being a rogue. feels very, very different and much more involved uh, in a kind of moment-to-moment -moment management of what you're doing. When I played my first playthrough, I rolled a human female warrior that had like the two-handed weapon. Because okay. that's, that's typically what I roll as first is always a warrior. Because I like, I've always loved the swords, you know, mm -hmm. the shields and things like that. But yeah. I went with a, a big two-handed like axe weapon for this one. And... Uh, the second time I did something completely different. I did an elf, uh, archer, which okay. is completely different. So elf, rogue, archer, and you have to play it completely different than you do a tank, right? You're sitting back in the back, in the back of the field. You're, you're taking your mm. shots. you really want to be farther away because the, the farther you are, there's a, a bonus that gets you more damage on the character, obviously. Right. Yeah. So... But yeah, you, and when I was doing my second playthrough, um, I chose the Nightmare difficulty. Ooh, <laughs> well, see, I'm wondering if, if I could ever face a third playthrough, that's what I might do. So how much hard, so on your first playthrough, did you play it on normal or did you play it on hard? Uh, I just played it through on normal because I always like to experience the story as it's supposed to be experienced. So normal mm. or whatever they have it as default is what I go with. Yeah, me too. So how much harder is it on Nightmare? Because I've noticed it's it's noticeably harder on hard, but it's not not horrific. So how hard is Nightmare? 
it's pretty hard, <laughs> especially <laughs> considering that I went from a tank to an archer. <laughs> but I mean, I'm I'm sticking with it. Um, you have to rely a lot on the tactical camera when you yes. when you do that harder difficulty because otherwise I I would be dying left and right. You have to have mm. the tactical movement. You have to plan things out. Um, but once you get the hang of that tactical camera, it's it becomes easier to do. The one thing I do wish that they changed uh, or allowed you to do is you can have more abilities than are mapped to your controller. So like you have, yeah. I think it's four abilities or whatever, maybe five, and then you hit the button and then it has five more. But you can have more than that. Your character can have more than that. When you're yes. in the tactical, I wish you had the option to pop up. Okay, I want to choose this one that's not mapped, that I hardly ever use, but I need I need it right now. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that was a shame not to have a full range of abilities kind of on hand for all of your characters. And something else which I completely understand that they couldn't handle. But it always strikes me as odd in these games that you've got this party of really amazing characters and you say, you seven, make a coffee, sit down, chill out. We're going to go off and fight this dragon. Yeah, you, you know. guys just chill out over here in the castle where everything's all right. Because one of the things... Did you ever play Final Fantasy X? Um, briefly, barely, hardly at all. All right, so one of the things that I liked about Final Fantasy X was that you have your three members of the party who are fighting, but you can swap in other party members at any point. So although you can only have three at once, you have access to all of your party. So if one of your party is injured, you can swap out one to bring in your healer. They can heal them and then jump out again, and then another fighter can jump in. Well, that makes sense. That's good. So that was really... Uh, and also, I could be wrong on this. Uh, they might, Final Fantasy X players might be like throwing things at me, because I played it years ago. Because I've played different games that have had that with different variants. So sometimes if someone dies, then that slot, if you like, is gone. But I have a feeling in ten actually, it wasn't. If someone died, you could just replace another party member. So if you're in a really epic, serious fight, you know, your party can get knocked down one by one, but you can keep kind of bringing them in. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, which I, I, again, I really liked. So, yeah, I, I do wonder about that sometimes, particularly with the big fights. I can understand if you just say, well, we're going to pop off to, down to the village. We'll just take three of us. But right. when, you're, when you're fighting the epic grand dragon that can, like, lay waste to armies, why is everyone not there? Yeah, and I think if, correct me if I'm wrong, but in Dragon Age origins there was a part at the very end where everybody in your team was at this final mission and you had to choose who you wanted with your character and who the other team was and you at one point had to go play with the other team yes there was and yeah there was that was and i always find it interesting in role-playing games where they do that kind of thing particularly in games where if you haven't leveled the characters up individually they're not the same levels or <laughs> you they have horrible this... weapons and horrible yes. armor <laughs> yes because invariably, there's going to be a character that you don't jive with, that you don't yeah. really like. That once you get them, they just stay in the in the you know in the castle. Yeah. Um, I know, like in in this game, I try to use all the different characters. And mm -hmm. and the thing that makes you use them obviously is their character missions, which were really well done in this game. Yes, um, agreed, agreed. But I loved always having Sarah in the party. She's always just crazy with the knives but i never had cole in my first playthrough because yeah. you don't have you can't have two rogues right yeah. and especially if your characters are rogue then you're pretty much it 
because uh, you need the tanks to take the the attention away from you. Yes. So, but and there's always going to be those characters that you don't get to play a lot of time with, or that if you do have them, um, but don't have them with you all the time. There's interactions because you'll have one character, but not another, and those two characters can have a relationship and be talking about it, like in the background, which I yeah. love. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of thing is absolutely gorgeous um, in Inquisition. And again, you know, and I, I take a step back and I think about the challenges they had with that game. You know, the sheer amount of dialogue they had to record and decisions that they had to consider what the different impacts might be. Because one of the things I love about the game is if you do, say, start romancing a character, your party might gossip about it. Yeah. And... So it feels like your actions have consequence and that they matter. And that, for me as a player, is one of the, the most important things. So one of my big beefs or, or kind of problems with Dragon Age 2... Uh, so, I, so I played through Dragon Age 2 uh, several times. And I played through the first time, and I kept thinking... I, you know, there were various points where you'd, you'd have like a choice of what to do with a particular character. You know, do you let them free? Do you kill them? All those kind of things. Do you side with this group or that group? And I was like, oh, this is really exciting. And then I played a second time where I thought, right, I'm going to go for the opposite kind of choices to see what happens. And actually, there wasn't any real major difference. You know, it was a, it seemed like a dramatic major choice, but regardless, the story kind of plays out the same. And again, spoilers for Dragon Age 2 coming up, but the whole thing at the end, you know, do you side with the Mages or the Templars? Is this yeah. big deal? And it doesn't matter at all. It makes no difference. And I, f I was really annoyed by that. And interestingly, I feel that Hawk is kind of irrelevant. His story is irrelevant. It really because, is. Because it feels like what happens in Kirkwall is going to happen anyway that the Mage Templar War is going to happen anyway, and your actions in Dragon Age 2 don't seem to really impact very much on Inquisition. Oh. They don't. I mean, you get Varric, which is a great continuation from Dragon Age yeah. 2. And, you know, um, Cassandra's character, she was in Dragon Age 2. Mm. And you get your hawk, supposedly, that can you transfer do. over. Um but it really doesn't matter. Like, so my, my biggest beef with... I loved Dragon Age Origins. Mm. Dragon Age 2, not so much. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, I played through it once, and I wanted to, to play through it again because I got all the achievements on Dragon Age Origins. Um, and I want to get all the achievements in Inquisition. And I feel like I should do it in 2. But man, <laughs> it feels nah. like that's going to be such a chore to do. So Dragon Age 2 had a couple of nice characters. Um, I quite like Fenris, for example. Um, Fenris, well, yeah, was okay. I mean, in fact, there were, quite, there were a few of the party that were all right. But it... Isabella and, was oh, interesting. Yeah, she was cool. What was the name of the guardswoman? I quite liked her as well. The guardwoman. Um, she was the captain of the guard. She was your sort of tank fighter in Sword and Shield... Um, she becomes like the captain of the guard. She's very straight. That wasn't Cassandra? No, not Cassandra. Um, oh, what's her name? All those people playing Dragon Age 2 will be throwing things at me now going, come on. Um, but yeah, there were, there were some characters that I liked anyway. But I thought Dragon Age Origins had, a, had some stronger cast 
in it than two. That was that was Cassandra. I just <laughs> fight. I, I no, no, no. Cassandra, yeah, Cassandra was in two, but there was a character who had like gingery blonde hair that's in right right at the start of the game that's with you. Oh, who becomes the Kurt one that Ball's dies. Caps in the guard. Um, she I might die. I, I don't remember. think she dies. Or maybe she does. Or maybe there are ver- versions where she can die. Anyway. <laughs> but yes, fundamentally, the game felt it felt meaningless. Whereas, whereas Origins felt like you were kind of battling for the fate of the world, an Inquisition feels epic in scope and feels important. Oh, and while we're talking about Inquisition, the map is brilliant. The battle map. Map is where you, great. Where you've got, you know, I, I like that thing where you have like different options to solve political issues, and that sometimes the fastest option isn't necessarily the best, and that you know it. Although there are any minor differences, sometimes there's some really quite nice dialogue or text results of your different quests. Oh, you're you know, talking about the war, the war council I'm chamber. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm using the completely wrong words. I'm talking about the war council. And okay, the... yeah, that is... So at first, when I first started playing that game, I didn't really look at what the options, like what the dialogue was. I was just looking at, oh, this one's ten minutes, this one's five. I'll yeah, go for the yeah, five yeah, minute yeah. one. But yeah, once you start reading what the options are, you're like, oh man, I, I don't... I wonder what I did in the past. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and some of them are quite, you know, am I going to be really ruthless and just send my troops in and take it? Or am I going to negotiate and give them a fair price? And those kind of things. Pretending on your character are really interesting. So, for example, when I played the first playthrough, I was a very kind of pro-mage, pro-magic, very open type, paragon type character. Whereas my elven rogue is a much more kind of embittered, uh, type uh, who also doesn't have illusions about his own survival so you know I'm going to take much more of the, the most expedient options rather than the let's take all the risks options to do the best you know to be to be super nice and it just has such a different feel and there's the whole um, role playing section where in an Orle where there's like you know do you which factions are you going to support um and I think in my first playthrough again, you know, I, I went for, I effectively d- defended the, is it the Empress? I defended her against the coup. In Inquisition? In Inquisition. Yeah. Yeah, in Orlay. There's a whole Orlay section where you go and you do the big quest and it's like all pretty much all role playing with little tiny fight sections. The dance thing? The yeah. ball? That, yeah, the ball. That was a brilliant, brilliant Yeah, level. wasn't it? Yeah. Um. And, uh, yeah, and I'm like, I'm really interested to see what happens if I play it again, whereas this time I'm going to support the elves in in, in Orle and give help them, you know, get more prominence because obviously they're involved in the coup. And hopefully it's going to feel very different because one of the things that was also good about Inquisition was at the end, oh, I should say as well, in the first, my first playthrough, I romance Cassandra. Cassandra, I should add, is one of my favourite characters ever in a role-playing game on a computer. <laughs> She's brilliant. You know, she's interesting. She's, she's she's got a lot of her moral compass is set to north, and it doesn't waver. Yeah, and but also she's, I think she's quite nuanced as well. You know, that it's not just oh here is your kind of paladin type character, and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, she 
she has kind of a secret love of romance and that that book uh the yeah, thing with that, uh Varric, that was book awesome is, yeah exactly and these touches that make the characters just seem that bit more three-dimensional than a lot of games you know, there's so many games where you just have, oh, here is our tank, and our tank stomps around being rrrr, and here is our elegant, sarcastic rogue character, and here is our pompous mage, and that's the end of it. And and Dragon Age is so much more than that. I mean, for example, the two elves you get in your party are non-standard elves. You know, they're, they're quite different. You know, Solus does not fit into the elven nation, and doesn't get on with the Dalish you know they've tried to tried to get rid of him mm-hmm. in the past and um, Sarah is kind of your antithesis to your ordinary kind of haughty elegant elf she's crazy and I really like that they've done that you know and actually Varric is excellent as a dwarf character Varric is awesome I mean so you look at Varric right and my first playthrough I didn't use him a lot but mm-hmm. after I like when I went back to play the Jaws of Khan DLC, he was in my party because I realized his importance and his dialogue that he gives you is really cool too. He's actually mm. a really awesome character. Yeah, and I think that's one of the real strengths of it is that the characters matter. So I always feel that Dragon Age Inquisition feels like Skyrim with story <laughs> and character because Skyrim had that open world feel and it was epic. and it was I mean, I loved the whole... Just it was all there. You see a castle in the distance, you can go visit it and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. it was amazing. But I found after a while, I just sort of stopped caring. Like it felt all a bit meaningless and a bit empty somehow. Um, you know, and, and also this whole thing that you can be the Grandmaster Mage and you can be the, the, the kind of champion of the Fighters Guild and the Slayer of Dragons. And people still talk down to you mm-hmm. and still say the same dialogue they said before. You know, it was funny. I didn't play Skyrim. I bought it, but I never played it. But I played Oblivion. Oh, yeah. I played Oblivion, too. I loved Oblivion. And in Oblivion, once you become, like, the head mage, like, you are the head mage, so you, by right, you should be able to go to that room and, you know, take yeah. take whatever you want. <laughs> and I was playing, like, you know, in the game, I was playing a good character, and I was like, I figured that since I was the head mage, I could go and take anything I wanted to from the room. But then someone saw me take something and called me a thief. And then I was like, no, this is mine. So, and obviously I wasn't going to kill them or anything. They reported me. And then I had, I was banished from the mage guild. <laughs> nice. And I looked online for like people to try to like to figure out how I get out of this. Like there was this rare flower that nobody online like mentioned or anything. I had to go buy a strategy guide to figure out <laughs> how to get my banishment lifted for oblivion. That- that but is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I... you're the head of the Mage Guild. You should be whatever you says goes. It's like, you're the guy. Nobody yeah. questions you. So that kind of thing kind of kicks me out of the story. One last thing whilst we're talking about Oblivion I've just got to mention is there was this thing on Oblivion where if you were the head of the Mage's Guild, you could design your own spells. So, and there are all kinds of hacks for the game that kind of make it unplayable. But the thing that I loved, if you could create a spell that was a touch spell, because touch spells were cheaper, and then you could touch your opponent. It basically meant for a, a duration of time that you set, they're kind of super vulnerable to all the different elements. And then you create a second spell, it's the touch spell again to keep it cheap, which does the most damage you can get away with in all of the different elements for a, the same duration as the first spell. And the damage multipliers are so huge that the char- when you hit a character with this spell, 
And if they're not that tough, they will literally fly <laughs> into into the distance because you hit them with such force. And I never got bored of doing that, of being a mage and running around like a, a madman, touching people and then watching them fly off into the distance. That's awesome. It was just awesome. Anyway, tra- uh, digression. But so Skyrim and, and I guess Oblivion 2 had that kind of open amazingness. But the thing with Dragon Age is that the characters are so much richer. You got more stories. story, exactly. And, and, and even like the little quests feel, I don't know, more somehow. The, 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 it feel, they do a better job of making it feel like there are genuine things going on. So uh, one example I give of this, early on in the game, when you're in um, the first area, the Hinterlands, I think it is, uh, you're, there's a, the Templars and the Mages are fighting each other in, you know, across the, the land. Mm-hmm. And you're taking out their various camps and things. And after you've done that, the random wandering groups disappear. So in the early parts of that, that game, because obviously you can do the, the quests in any order you like, um, you constantly come across these random groups of Templars or Mages that you have to fight. But when you've taken out all the camps, they go. Mm-hmm. So you've made an impact on the game world. And that's a permanent shift. I always like that about really Fable like that. too. Yeah. So uh, an, another example of that in Dragon Age is um, one of the actual areas is affected. I think it's under a curse or there's some really bad thing and it is really grim and horrible and then when you deal with it, it becomes lovely. Mm-hmm. And that, which is, again, is a very fable type thing. But I like that as a player, it's one of my favorite things because it feels like my actions have meaning in the world. And particularly then, if other characters that you wander past say, oh, oh thanks for doing that, you know, it's, it just feels, I don't know, it, it makes it a more immersive experience, I suppose. I like how when you're walking around, the characters all call you Inquisitor. Or yeah. some of them call you Inquisition. I, I don't know why they address you as Inquisition. That's a bit strange. I, at least I think that. Maybe my hearing's just bad and I hear Inquisition. <laughs> but, um, you know, with this game, it's, like you said, it's a rich story. Um, and I don't know if you did this, but before you started playing your second playthrough, because I did it, uh, I found out about it before my second playthrough, but after my first started, so... Did you go to the Dragon Age Keep on the website, uh, the yes. Dragon Age Keep website, to, to fill in your story? I did. Okay. I love how how they make it, even the smallest decisions. You look at the Dragon Age Keep, right? There are some decisions that were, you helped this person find their dad. That was really not groundbreaking to the game. But... Because it's in there in the keep, and you tell them that you did that, you might actually encounter that person later on, or there could be a mission based on that that event. So, yeah, the story that they have that carries from you know Dragon Age uh, Origins to Awakening to Dragon Age Two is really cool. Plus, all the DLC. Like, if you played the DLC and you made choices in there, those matter too. Everything mattered. Where yeah. some games, you don't get that. 
yeah, I think that is the real the real strength to the game. And it is nice when you bump into characters that you think, oh, I remember you. Mm-hmm. And that and that the way you treated them makes a difference. And also, when you see the keep and it reminds you, I think it was also a good thing because I hadn't played Origins for years. Uh, it was quite useful seeing some of those choices and going, oh, yeah, I remember doing that and, mm-hmm. uh, and taking that away from it. And again, I think that is a hugely difficult thing to try and pull off. There are so many things... And sometimes all they do is like a, a, a little line of text, you know, that you find in a letter. Right. And that's that's the only reference. But the fact they took the time to do it, because they didn't have to, I think shows... I mean, Bioware, for me, are pretty much the people at the moment creating games like this, where they really seem to get the story and, and that market of players... There isn't much else for us out there, really. I'll be interested with The Witcher next week to see how they do. Yes, I hear very good things about Witcher 3. I I tried Witcher 2, and I really struggled with it. I don't know what it was, because I could see it was very high quality in terms of the scripting and all of that. But I found it, I didn't find it intuitive to play. Uh, and some people said that you had to kind of, again, you had to stick with it for X time. <laughs> but I... I it didn't. I think I got so far in, and then I got stuck, or something happened, and I I just I don't know. I didn't quite feel. I never felt natural to me when I was playing. I always felt like I was struggling in kind of some of the combats and things. Yeah. Uh, whereas in Dragon Age, I didn't. I have. I've always felt very at home with it, and that and it's felt very responsive to what I've asked the characters to do. And is that because? you are more familiar with the story of Dragon Age, though, because you've played from Origins? I mean, I'm sure that helps, and it, and also that I'm familiar with the, the way the game plays, but I think I just I found Origins easier to play. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm going to say this. Origins is an amazing game. It was probably my favorite RPG uh, at that time for that generation of console. Um mm. Because it reminded me so much of, again, going back to Knights of the Republic, which was also by Bioware. Um, You look at that, and it plays very similar to it. And then you look at the progression where, and they did the same kind of thing with Mass Effect, where they went from this really in-depth RPG inventory system and everything, and they kind of pared it back and made it more accessible to Mm. people who weren't really into the RPG scene. And... With Mass Effect, they had a good balance still. But with mm. Dragon Age 2, they they just lost everything that Origins really was. And they, they pared it down to just the city location and everything. You didn't have this big map, which, by mm. the way, the map in Dragon Age Inquisition, humongous. It is massive. Yeah. So it's a massive area. And I think the other thing with Dragon Age Inquisition is, say, compared to... In Dragon Age 2 it didn't really feel like there was much to explore. Mm-hmm. I generally felt like I was running down corridors that were predefined. And yeah, there were a few offshoot rooms I could go check out for a chest, but that was it. Or you're in the same dungeon over and over again. Yeah. Whereas, and, and you know, the deep roads, you know, they're these very long roads, and I get that. I hate and the And that deep makes roads. sense. But they're really boring. Uh-huh. Whereas in Inquisition, there were lots of really lovely different areas to explore. And... Yeah, sometimes you were in a, a building and it was fairly contained, but a lot of the time you could go anywhere and it rewarded you for exploring. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the things that's really struck me just having played the intro bit, which is quite a 
directed bit actually that you know it's go follow Cassandra go here go there whatever but if you do stray off the beaten path a bit there are like abandoned houses to find mm-hmm. or a bunch of monsters hanging out at a, by a little campsite that they've ambushed and things you can find and interact with and again that uh, that really appeals to me you know you don't have to find these things and it, it doesn't matter if you don't but if you want to it's there Mm-hmm. Like the the mosaic pieces that are scattered about the maps too. Yeah, I never found a single complete mosaic in my first no, me playthrough. Me neither. Me neither. And that's one of the things that I'm thinking about here. And I didn't do all the shards either. Oh, I did the shards. The shards were. I loved. Uh, I loved the aspect of finding them and just going and getting them. I loved that. So I got all the shards um, in the game, and it's really cool what you can unlock and get it's worth it for what you get from those rooms that you can get into. Yeah, I've, I've started doing that like with my second playthrough of, of getting the shards. Uh, in my first playthrough, I did do all the dragons. So I did all the dragons as well, except I didn't get the achievement for it. It only shows that I <gasps> did eight of them. Oh, no. Yeah. That I, was, that's, must have been a bitter moment. Yeah, yeah, but at least you can go back, supposedly, and it's a cumulative score, so like... During my second playthrough, I should be able to unlock it just fine. Um, but the dragons... Let's talk about the dragons for a minute. All right. Amazing. Like, those fights... The first dragon fight that you were in was... Wasn't it just, like, the most epic thing ever? It was incredibly epic and, and wonderful. One of, the, one of the things I found interesting about the dragon fights is how uneven they were. Mm-hmm. So the very first dragon I came across is in the first area. was actually one of the hardest dragons to beat, I found. Hinterlands, yep. Because the Hinterlands dragon has the whole thing with... It moves to different locations. Sometimes it just you know goes up high and pounds you with fire. But it also has minions that it summons. Mm-hmm. It has a whole battery of different things. Whereas you know there are some dragons where they kind of turn up. They don't even fly around much. They just stand there and you beat on them and they die. Mm-hmm. Ranging right the way through. Uh, so yeah, the Hinterlands Dragon was one of the hardest, considering its level, because it's not one of the highest level dragons, but it was one of the toughest to beat. I remember being very pleased with myself when I beat that dragon. The one that gave me the most trouble was, I think, the Storm Coast Dragon at the time. Yeah. The, I think it was, like, you go to this island, and all that's on there is, like, dragonlings and then that dragon. Yes, and yes, I know the one. he's the lightning dragon. He was just, he was, he would guard, and then when he put this guard up, it was just you couldn't attack him and he was just do it left and right and I was like oh my god he was he was hard and there's certainly one of those things where some of the dragons have sort of special attacks that if they if they use them frequently you just die and you know you never know when they're going to use them or not so which by the way Jaws of Akan DLC has its own dragon does it yeah is it is it a very tough dragon by any chance um it was a solid fight. I'll give it that. And I was, a, I, mean, I think, I level twenty six or twenty seven when I fought it. Mm. So it was a solid fight, and it has a like a variety that it does. It doesn't just stay in one spot. It goes around, and then it shoots fireballs at you, and it flies around, and it summons little dragons. So it does a lot of things. And it here's, I don't know if I want to spoil this. Never mind. I'm not going to say it. You need to play it. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I appreciate you not spoiling it because I do hate spoilers. So. Yes, I will definitely play it. And I'm, I'm glad that you're recommending it because it's one of those things I would have thought, mm. see, my birthday's not that far away, so I'll be... And I've been asked what I want, and now I know what to ask for. I want the DLC for Dragon Age. Yeah, and it's only like $15. I think, what is that, like £12 or something like that? Yeah, it's, it'll, be, 
It'd be pretty cheap, yeah. So, bad. and it gives you, you know, talking about talking about our our discussion from before with the season pass stuff, but it gives you at least ten, if not more, hours of content mm. to play through, because the map is probably the second biggest map in the game because it gives you a whole new area um, with shards of its own to collect and its own shard room. And it gives you Asteriums. Is it, is it called Asteriums? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's three of those in there. So it has you know its own room that opens up for that. And See, it's really the other well done. Th- that's the other thing I think is why... So, yeah, obviously I, I miss named the kind of war room before but actually the the map in dragon age is really good um it's easy to follow it makes sense it's easy to keep track of everything and um where was i going with this <laughs> it's easy uh, to follow <laughs> it's easy to follow i i this sentence is not easy to follow but the map is <laughs> the map's great yeah it's the, the 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 way you interact with it is is good and uh, no, I'm, uh, I've, I've blanked out. I'll tell you one thing that I don't think was quite so clear, in some ways, was the crafting interface. Yeah, the crafting could have been explained to me a little bit better, because you could go through the entire game without ever crafting anything if you wanted to, but mm. you get so much better material if you do. Like, I remember, because you can create your own runes. Yes. And... I had to go online to figure out how do I make a rune and I had to figure out where I could buy a blank rune stone. Mm. Um, cause that wasn't really clearly defined in the game, but there, there are some things that it, it could honestly be, they may have explained it, but there may have been an information dump at some point in the game, or maybe those codex entries that I just maybe kind of glanced at yeah. <laughs> that may have explained how to do what I needed to do. I know what I was going to say. It's come back to me. Go ahead. And that was, you were talking about Astrariums, and I was thinking that they've really put it... So one of the things I really like about the game is that when you first start exploring, you suddenly find not only, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got some quests to do, and then you, as you explore, you keep accumulating more quests, and it's like, oh, and I've got those camps to go and establish, and mm-hmm. oh, yeah, oh, and there's these Astrariums, and if I go collect them all, I can, oh, and there's these mosaics to collect, and oh, there are these shards to find... And there's the, what are they called that you look through to find the shards on the map? The, uh, the little skulls on the... Alluvium? No. Yes. Right? No, not an alluvium. That's the mirror, isn't it? Yeah, that's the mirror. The um, but, but anyway, the, the, there, there's this sort of... Although, actually, the actions are often quite similar, there's a huge range of things that you can go and get and, and get involved in collecting. And it's just quite... I like that, that... That, and you've got all the different mounts to find as well and buy and there's there's just the variety I thought was wonderful. The the one things that I thought were really cool that they added too were the requisition missions. Yes. So every every area had like a survey mission. So it it built the lore and showed you, you know, what you could do. There were the the ones that were kind of like, oh, just find X amount of minerals and X mm. amount of flowers. But there were ones, too, that were actually served a purpose and like helped you build relations with another faction. Yeah, and that was, uh, those were some of my favorite bits. I also really like the things where once you've got your Inquisition up and running and you'd hit an area where maybe there was a giant cavern, uh, chasm or something and then the Inquisition would go and like build a bridge for you to go across it or things like that where 
again, you could spend your influence to actually change the map to access new areas. Mm-hmm. I really like that. That was really cool. I like that as well. And those those missions as well that you get with the War Room Council. Mm-hmm. Before you get into the War Room Council, um, the, to choose your, if you're looking at Orlais or Ferelden, yeah. you can choose your Inquisitor like perks, yes. which you get those for, you know, I've, by completing missions and other things and building relations, you get the Inquisition mm. ranking. Yes. And a lot of those, like, take time. Like, if you're going into this game for the first time, look at all the options and see you really need to plan out, like you would a skill tree, what you want to focus on and what you want to get. Because you could, quite honestly, waste an Inquisition perk and have them bring you a collection of common flowers. Or you could have them, like, increase your inventory by 10, which may not sound like a lot, but that extra 10 slots lets you go for a lot longer in that dungeon without having to come back out. Yeah, all Inquisition slots, or perks, I should say, are not made equal. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them are so much. So, for example, the one that means that you have just have more healing potions in your inventory mm-hmm. is probably one of the best perks, full stop. And there are other ones, as you say, that it just means you get some extra herbs. Like, woohoo! Yeah. Wow. Look at them so, closely before you figure out what you want to use them on. Yeah, they were, that is definitely important. So yes, I, I think Dragon Age Inquisition is is a fabulous game. We've kind of talked about the the kind of the storytelling being good, the characters, the romance plot lines are wonderful. I think as well, the the relationships between your party members is really good too. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that. You know, sometimes your party will disapprove of you or get annoyed with you mm-hmm. because of the decisions that you're making. The fact you've got the war room to choose how you're going to do all these different things with the world and interact on a larger scale. I thought that gave you the feel of running an Inquisition without it being too dull. Mm-hmm. And that coupled with the thing where you pass judgment on people. Yes, I was just going to bring that up. The judgment. I love I love the judgment part. So there was a, there was one that was kind of like silly. I can't remember what it was or when it came in the game, yeah. but guy comes and he throws a, a goat at the wall. Yes. <laughs> and it's just like your interaction, your inquisitor's just like got these facial expressions, yeah. these looks. And it's it's so well done. But then you have the ones where this person was being very evil and very maniacal and what do you want to do with them? And you could, you know, choose to execute them, you could choose to lock them up or have them do something else or let them go or whatever. But those were interesting choices and Again, I'm going to reiterate, spoilers. The character of Blackwall. Mm, indeed. Probably the most interesting, in my opinion, storyline of all the characters. Because you find him, and he's a Grey Warden. Or so he says. And he's kind of going through this whole thing, and you, you, you're uncovering his, his past. You go to this place in the Storm Coast, and you find... Um, like a badge or something. And he's like, oh, yeah. The way that that was acted and the way that that was read in the dialogue, you kind of figured there was something going on, which it cannot be understated. The voice acting in this game was tremendous. But his story progresses in such a way that, yeah, he's he's kind of doing this thing. He has this little side plot, and it gets to a point where someone either recognizes him or he turns himself in because he someone was going to die for him that wasn't supposed to. And he turned himself in to free that person. And then you, as the Inquisition, 
as the Inquisitor, go and kind of figure out what's all happening, collect the data, collect all the stories from all the other people, and then you pass judgment as to what happens to this character. Yeah, and I think that sort of sums up the thing that's with several of the points in the game where it's often quite grey. You know, there isn't a clear, oh yes, this is the right answer. Because in, in a lot of games, you know, if we go back to the Fable example, in Fable, generally, you were either nice to people or you were really monstrous for, for no real reason as far as I could see. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Inquisition, sometimes it's like, well... Is, is it the right thing to let this person go? Is it the right thing to kill them? Is it the right thing to punish them in some other way? You know, th there is genuine thought, I think, that has to sometimes go into these decisions. And I really like that. Uh, and again, depending on maybe the, your, the character you're playing or your own personal kind of views might slant you. And the other thing I really like in a lot of those judgment sections is let's say your character has something, you've got some of the perks so you know a lot about nobility or you know a lot about the criminal underworld, mm -hmm. or history, or something like that, you can sometimes get extra options that you wouldn't normally have, mm -hmm. either to ask questions of the, uh, of the person under judgment, or to pass a new judgment, because you know about some obscure law that was passed 10 years ago that no one else does. Yeah. And again, I really, like, I really like the fact that your character choices also allow you to navigate different paths in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, this game, there's there's a lot. Obviously, I've played it for, I think my Xbox tells me over 130 hours at this point. <laughs> but well there's so much to talk about with this game. And, you know, you, you haven't even really, we haven't touched on, you know, you, you get to the point where the game where, where things are about to go down. You know, the you get to the final mission and you kind of understand things are happening because your team sets down for like a card game. And it's just this nice little scene with all the team together there, right? Yeah. And I don't know if this happened in your accounting, but in mine, uh, what's his name? The uh, the guy, the male knight guy. What's his name? Cullen. Cullen, yeah. So he gets in there, and he's, he's playing cards with everybody, and you say that you'll play cards and things like that. And then later on, he ends up naked and running, like running away, trying to get nobody to see him. <laughs> it's it was just hilarious. Um, did that happen for you, by the way? It did, it did. And the, some of those little scenes are lovely, <clears throat> where it's sort of the the culmination of of these characters that have gone on a long journey with you, but also with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, and it does feel like the characters start to have their own rapport yeah. in your in your party, uh, which is. You know, which one of and you know, so for example, Cassandra and Varric's relationship is a wonderful thing mm -hmm. That's as one it develops that, over the game. Yeah, exactly. It's one that they're polar opposite characters because of their experience in the last game. They really don't like each other, but then as things progress, they start to like each other, and the the relationship between them grows. Um, and speaking of relationships too, with the Iron Bull and his guys, like you can tell how how close he is with his with his gang there. And then you yeah. get to the part where you get to know them. I think you're drinking with them and yes. you're just kind of getting to know everybody in the gang. And then there's his his mission comes along. And you have to choose what happens because his team is defending something or attacking something. And you're with Iron Bull fighting another spot. And then you see these ships coming in 
And you're like, if we don't help them, they're dead. But if we do help them, this is lost, and it affects the whole realm. That was one of the most difficult decisions I made in the game, was whether or not to help them mm. or to, to to keep things right in the realm. But it has a lot of those moments where you have to stop and think about how you want your story to progress. Because, like we've said, everything matters. All the decisions that you make, they build this wonderful tapestry mm. that is really well represented and everything has an effect. And certainly at the end of the game, you get a sense of that as well. Mm. You know, decisions about what happens with the Chantry, decisions about Orlais, you know, all kind of come together towards the end. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, you know, it's not like every decision you make comes out well. Sometimes it's, you hear the description, you think, oh, maybe I should have gone with the other option because mm -hmm. this sounds like it was a bit of a disaster. And yeah, I really like that. You know, it's, it's, I don't think you ever feel like you can catastrophically fail, but you can certainly feel like you've done better or worse for the world through your time in it. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and as we wind this discussion down, looking at the end of the game, so there's, there's a few things that happen, and there's, there's a big revelation in the game, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I may, you may be able to possibly explain to me a little bit more as to what actually happened, but because it's been a little while since I played it, at the very end of the game, Flemeth and yeah. Solus are talking to yeah. each other. Yeah. Are they the old Dalish gods that were being referenced in the Dalish... Um, uh, temple. So, super spoilers, people. Well, yeah, super spoilers. <laughs> Not just spoilers, super spoilers. But yeah, they are, yeah. So, okay. Solus is the wolf. Mm -hmm. You know, the one that's outcast, supposedly. Because there's the whole thing in the temple with Morrigan. And she's saying, this is really odd, because normally the wolf isn't p put together mm -hmm. with the other gods. Cause it's, and he isn't. And yeah, Solus is that... Uh, is that God? Yeah. So we get this conversation, and then super, super, super spoilers. Flemeth takes him over. She becomes Solus. Is that is that what I'm to understand that she's killed the Wolf God then and inhabits him now? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, possibly. I have to I have to go and check it out again because I I my memory of it is hazy. I've only seen it once, but yeah, but. So that little bit there is really kind of wondering what's going to happen either in an expansion DLC or in the next game. Like, how are they going to pick this up? How are they going to continue it? Because Flemeth has been a character since the beginning in Dragon Age Origins as well. Um, well, since probably the beginning of <laughs> so my, that land. My only slight gripe with Flemeth is that in Origins, I did different things in different playthroughs. But one of the things, in, in the playthrough where I was romancing Morrigan, there's a bit in Origins where you go back and she's like, wants you to sell Morrigan out. And you can choose to do a thing where you, put, it's like a quest for Morrigan and, to get this book. And you can either choose that she says, look, I'll give you the book, pretend I'm dead, and then I'll come and sort her out later. And you can cut the deal with, with Flemeth that way. So you effectively betray Morrigan. Or you can say, no way, Flemeth, I'm taking the book. And she turns into a giant dragon and you have this really difficult fight. Uh, and in the, the playthrough where I romance Morrigan, that's what I did. I, 
I said, no, I'm going to fight you, and I killed her. So when she then turns up in Dragon Age 2, I'm like, what? Well, Flemeth <laughs> never you. dies, though. Didn't Morgan, in that thing, make a mention that Flemeth will never die? Like, she'll just inhabit another body? Oh, well, she possibly does, but but as a from a player experience, right, I guess. Yeah, yeah. My, my only thing is, is that when I've, as far as I can tell, killed the giant dragon that is Flemeth's other form. And the only dragon other than the, the big bad of Dragon Age yeah. Origins. I feel like that's her out of the game now. So when she popped back up in Dragon Age 2, I was like, what? <laughs> I killed you. Whereas obviously in the playthrough where I didn't do that, where I didn't uh, kill her and I just cut a deal with her, that was completely fine for me. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the only times that I've had that happen. Now, it may be, I played this a long time ago, that someone will say to me, ah, but if you watch that sequence carefully, you know, she doesn't actually die or she slips out in the background while you're, or whatever, you know, there's some kind of clever twist that I missed. But Yeah. I'm sure that could always be, you know, uh, retcons. Someone says, oh, yes. no, really, she was, she was just... Like Superman, you know, his heartbeat was really slow. He's not really dead. Yes, that's right. I'm sure. I'm sure there are all kinds of clever reasonings around that. <laughs> um, but yes, it, it, she is a sort of staple character, and um, it will be interesting to see kind of where it goes from here. Mm-hmm. But I, I would imagine, given the success of the game, that they are bound to do another one. Exactly. Yeah, and I would hope so too. And yeah. I want to close out this discussion and ask you one more question, one more aspect of the game that I usually like to talk about with you know, movies and everything, is the music of the game. This game has tremendous music, in my opinion, and it's mm-hmm. really well used. Mm-hmm. There's a part towards the beginning of the game, I think it's when they anoint you as the Inquisitor, and then someone just starts singing the song, and then that parlays into this montage of you and your crew finding Skyhold. I think that's the scene. And yeah. they use this, this song, and I can't remember what the words are of it, or even if it's English. <laughs> but yeah. it's just the, the tone and the tune, and that's pretty much the, the main theme of the game. Really impactful scene for me. And I don't know if it's just because I really enjoyed that music or, or what it was at that point in time, but it really stood out to me, that point in particular. And plus you get all the crescendo and all the the big stuff when you're about to fight the bosses or the different people. And it's got really good background music, too, that just plays when you're just wandering around in the hinterlands or wherever. Mm. Yeah, and I think, as you say, I think it's used really well. But it's not music that's playing all the time, constantly. But they kind of bring it in in moments at certain points as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and mixing with the sound effects and when there's there's moments of drama sometimes the music will come in uh, in some of the cutscenes and I I completely agree uh, and I think that's sort of part of the whole experience because in a lot of games and I should add movies and things music can sometimes be invasive mm-hmm. and it can get in the way of the good storytelling but I think they they use it really artfully here yeah uh, and and funnily enough I mean um, things like the Mass Effect soundtracks I love oh, absolutely yeah. love. Um, and I, I kind of, you know, I, I completely removed from the game. I think they stand on their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I listen to soundtracks for, or I should say scores, for movies and video games, like, on a regular basis. That's the music that I prefer to listen to. And the Mass Effect 3 soundtrack, for instance, was really oh, good. I love that. The Arrival on Earth, I think, is the name of, this, of, mm. the, of the track of Mass Effect 3. 
amazing piece of music. Oh, it's just incredible. It's so good. Interestingly, um, the Mass Effect 3 soundtrack is the soundtrack I wrote the Vagrant to. Oh. So there you go. Then that's what you should read Vagrant to, am I correct? <laughs> well, that's, that, that's up to you. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything that can be spoiled by listening to the Mass Effect 3 soundtrack. It's always going to enhance your experience. Mm. Um, so that pretty much wraps up Dragon Age Inquisition. I mean, like I said, we can go on and on and on because all the little side quests and all the main plot points and everything. But honestly, this is a, um, a tremendous achievement in gaming. Mm. It's a great story. It's a great playthrough. Yeah, the graphics may not be up to amazing levels like The Witcher looks like. But if you want a really rich story, check out Dragon Age Inquisition. So, we welcome your thoughts on Dragon Age Inquisition. And you can text... a uh, text. <laughs> you can tweet us uh, for, at entertainingpod with those thoughts at any point, or send us a long form at thatsentertaining at gmail.com. Peter, I didn't want to cut you off. Did you have anything else to add for Dragon Age Inquisition this week? Um, the only last thing I'd say that I really like is that it's... Um, in terms of its representation... So you've got uh, characters who are gay, characters who are straight. Uh, you've got characters that are um, not straight in terms of gender uh, and sexuality uh, and, rep and, and the way they present themselves. And I, I mentioned with the elves as well that they have non-standard representation of fantasy races. Um, so I think, and, and also a gender equal society. So I think there are so many fantastic things that it does on that front as well that it, it, it deserves sort of special mention for. Mm -hmm. yeah, it does a good job really leveling the playing field. It doesn't matter who your character is or how you want to play them. It works, and it meshes, mm. and it feels right in the environment. Really well done, game. <laughs> so next week, we will be venturing back into the realm of movies with one of my favorite movies that I've never seen in the theater, but I really want to because I was too young when it came out. I wanted to go see it. I remember asking my parents to go see it, but they said no. And that's Jurassic Park. So Steven Spielberg's, I think it was 1993, classic movie, Jurassic Park. Uh, we'll be discussing that next week as we lead into... Jurassic World later this summer. Have you seen Jurassic Park? I've seen the original. Okay, yeah. So that's that's what we'll be talking about next week. And then there was obviously the the two sequels and now Jurassic World coming out. But Jurassic Park, the original, the classic movie, so good. Um, and uh, I just just want to reiterate again the the film score for Jurassic Park will probably be something I talk about too because. John Williams is amazing. <laughs> yeah, John Williams is the guy. Yeah. Um, so we have a question for you listeners. You've thought you've heard our thoughts on season passes. Now, how do you feel about season passes? Let us know. Give us a tweet and let's discuss it. You can always send us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. We are available on all those platforms. And you can contact us at entertainingpod 
on Twitter or send us an email to thatsentertaining at gmail.com. Peter, I know that you're on Twitter. I am. Uh, at RunPeteWright. At RunPeteWright. And you can follow him with all his Twitter antics and hijinks over there. And again, his, his book is The Vagrant, which you said is not available in the States yet? Uh, anyway, it, you can get it through things like Book Depository, uh, and you can get it through uh, Amazon.com okay. um, in hardback. It's not available in ebook form at the moment but uh, in the States, but you can, get, you can order the hardback if you want to. And it is a beautiful cover, if I do say so myself. <laughs> yeah, look at uh, Jamie Jones has done a top job. I look at the cover and it looks looks really good. Actually, I mean, when I first look at the cover, quite honestly, it was very reminiscent of Link. Huh. Like I, that's the first thing I thought of. Obviously, he's not Link, and he's got a lot more uh, adultness to him. <laughs> but uh, that's the first thing that kind of reminded me of it. But anything that reminds me of Link is fine by me. <laughs> good stuff. But uh, The Vagrant by Peter Newman. Feel free to check that out. And remember, listen to the Mass Effect soundtrack, Mass Effect 3 soundtrack, while you read. And you can catch me on Twitter. I am at SithNightmare. S-I-T-H-K-N-I-G-H-T-M-A-R-E. Feel free to hit me up, and let's chat all about scores and films and all kinds of good stuff. So, until next week, we thank you for joining us, and we hope that you have been entertained.